0: BBC Five Live. Five yes, uh, this is uh, not the voice of, of Simon Mayo. Um, I am sitting in his chair, though. I'm, I'm Ben, Ben Bailey Smith, and I'm in this week with uh, my good pal Robbie Collin. Hello. How's it going, Robbie? Good. Robbie Second Bassoonist Collin is what I called you, I think, in, in the middle of the show. Some point. Because, that's right. Because I, I, I felt I started to feel jealous of, of Dwayne the Rock Johnson having that thing. Dwayne oh, I Rock see. Johnson, I see. So
1: that's know? the kind of it's from reviewing from the second bassoon perspective.
0: Exactly. That's what I mean. And, we're, and the second bassoonist has is, is taken on an, an extra air on this show, I think, because we are stand-ins. We're the second guys. Well, we are, are we? The though, other guys. Because,
1: no, this is the thing, because, you know, I, I listen to the podcast when you know, if every week, and anyway. Um, Edith Bowman referred to us as the C-Team. Oh, we're the C-Team? Team. We're the C-Team. So, Edith, I don't know if you thought you were going to get away with that, but... <laughs> <laughs> words words can hurt
0: the c team wow
1: the nerve of that woman uh, you know i had nerve.
0: i haven't got to the end of that podcast yet i'm about halfway through so i've heard her talking Just about don't, don't listen. the shrill ladies don't So listen. she started with some self-deprecation which is which is good i don't find them shrill at all um but the c team that's that's a that's a, that's a dagger that's well, let's a dagger not even ask heart. what c stands for I mean. <laughs> uh, they always make me feel bad um not because than anything other than brilliant, but because of how young Clarice is always makes me feel super old.
1: Do you ever get that? I feel super old every single time I see think mean, like l- Love Simon. This is why I'm wearing brown corduroy.
0: Yeah, I mean you're today, not fighting I'm, it. I'm, I'm... I'm fighting it. You know, I've got I, got I got I got tattoos. I got I got I got like a silver chain. I wear my shirt unbuttoned. I don't tuck. I'm not, I'm not tucking yet. I'm not there. Oh, I'm tucked. But as you're t- you're, you're not fighting it. You're, Comprehensively tucked. Out. I'm
1: leaning into middle age.
0: Yeah, you're really enjoying it. I've just refuse to let it get me. <laughs> <laughs> but there we go. You know, um, but there's, there's no more. There's no more pretending. There's no more pretending. I, I am what I am. Robbie is what he is. We're actually the same, pretty much the same age. In fact, I think I'm older than you.
1: We're we're about, we're the same yeah definitely same Before, generation yeah right exactly yeah. but there was that was the there was this moment in um, Truth or Dare this horror film that we're, we're going to review later on mm. on the show um, where they describe the effects of demonic possession the the, the girl says um, it makes you look like you've got a messed up Snapchat filter because the <laughs> mouse turn up at the side and their yeah. eyes kind of go really narrow and kind of sneaky and I thought. Oh, I got that reference. I'm not kind of quite yeah, dead not, yet. No, no, I'm I'm, dead. Got... I'm 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 with it. I can understand integrate. a film aimed at teenagers. It's okay.
0: <laughs> Good man. And on that note, these two young, cool, hip dudes, right on, ready to start the show. Robbie, how are you doing?
1: I'm very well, thank you, Ben. How's things? Not bad. Reunited. Absolutely. Feel so good.
0: (laughs) Got there before me. Um, We've got a packed show as ever. What what, what movies have we got to review? We have.
1: We're talking about Rampage, The Titan, Custody, Truth or Dare, A Gentle Creature, and Western. Among those six films Mm. are three of my favourites of the year so far. So it's a it's a really really positive week in general.
0: They are not the three that I watched.
1: (laughs) And also have an interview as well. Yeah,
0: we do. We have a special guest, uh, Naomi Harris, who stars alongside The Rock in Rampage, big movie out this week. Uh, And you can hear my conversation with her in about half an hour, followed by Robbie's review of the film. And if you want to join in with the show, of course you can, as always, get in touch with us. Uh, Email mayo at bbc.co.uk, text us on 85058, and you'll also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Um... Now, I, I wanted to kick off, Robbie, by asking you what, a little bit about this uh, this movie, A Quiet Place, because yes. there's there's been a lot of talk. Uh, just pro- should probably say a lot of whisper uh, yes. about the quietness of a quiet place, and it's 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 got a lot of our listeners uh, uh, writing in um, because, as everybody knows, the the code of conduct surrounding um, the church of Wittertainment, there's there's, there's behavioural pro- uh, procedures that need to be adhered, and Quiet Place makes things quite difficult. Um, this uh, this came in from Adam Avery, who'd uh, just gone to see the film. He says, Dear Wonderful Stand-Ins, yesterday me and my friend Hadia went to see A Quiet Place. What a wonderful, clever, and cinematic piece of work it is. But, big but, dot, 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 because I'd heard murmurings that the film was super quiet throughout, I decided upon a double-decker. Uh, this is not the way he travelled there, this is the uh, this the is popular, the sna- the snack popular chocolate yep. bar. And um, as a good option, um, thinking that it wouldn't make any noise in the showing. I was wrong, he says, in capitals. Unwrapping and eating it without making a noise and ruining other vi- viewers' trip to the cinema was near impossible. The nougat stuck to the wrapper, the chocolate bar was holding on for dear life, not to, to not leave its crinkly wrapper, making noise that left me ashamed that I was going against my much-loved code of conduct. But next to me was a middle-aged man who had his phone on charge with an incredibly lit-up battery pack, with his phone beeping each minute from incoming messages, and then it happened. He pulled out his film snack. A full, ten-tier pack of rice cakes. Has there ever been a noisier snack, an even noisier packaging, than this? I'm pretty sure you can still hear the noise he was making in the screen next door, which was showing Pacific Rim Uprising. Swiftly, the cinema goers told him to stop eating and turn his blimmin phone off, which distracted everyone for two seconds so I could finally release my chocolate from its wrapper without anyone knowing at all. Thank you, Mr Distracting Man, but please learn from your mistakes and eat your noisy snacks at home. To everyone else, learn from our mistakes and eat and drink before going to see A Quiet Place. It really is that quiet. Is it really that quiet? It
1: is. This is the litmus test for the code of conduct, this film. And it's, I mean, that shows perfectly how quiet it is. If the sound of someone chewing a rice cake can drown out the sound of someone unwrapping a double decker, mm. I mean, the film is just basically silent because the, the premise. We should say we'll loop back to this when we talk about the top. You have in the to the remain quiet to not. You have to be remain attacked. quiet to not be attacked by the, the the creatures in the film. And I mean, I saw this yesterday, and it's so quiet that even someone's phone on vibrate was disturbing the screen. Wow. So there was like you know, I, I, was, I was sat kind of halfway back, a few rows ahead. Some text messages were coming in, not even lighting up, not even bleeping, but just this kind of. V-
0: v- So airplane mode for everybody. Exactly,
1: which is is normally, you know, I think that's normally acceptable in the cinema. But it was in a quiet place. It was like a truck was reversing down the aisle. And the lady next to me was trying to be polite to this person because she understood that it wasn't really that loud in the big scheme of things. The film is so tense and it makes you so acutely aware of Mm. any little noise. She got angry while she was asking this person to to turn the phone off and she was like, excuse me, can you please turn the phone off? (laughs) And he he did and it was all fine. But what I love about this film is that it kind of it reminds you what the theatrical experience is because one of the things you do when you go to the cinema is you enter into this kind of unspoken pact with fellow audience members that you're all going to be quiet together and watch the film pay attention to what's going on you have to trust your fellow audience members that they are going to do this as as they have to trust you too now because in a quiet place silence is how you survive by being silent and by being aware of other people's silence you kind of become complicit in the survival mechanism of the film it's an incredibly right it's, it's the best best way to experience this film you would not get the same at home regardless of how big your tv is regardless of how good your sound system is because it's about that complicity with strangers and for me that's always one of the most exciting things about going to the cinema seeing things with yeah. other
0: people. that's kind of answered my next question because i had another email from uh, rebecca grasby who actually asked you um whether she should just w- wait to watch it on dvd rather than the cinema, she says, because she was scared of being interrupted by gossiping and munching. And, and she she understands, she hasn't seen it yet, but she understands that the tension of the silence is a core part of what makes the film so effective, which is yeah, it's what completely, you're saying.
1: Any half-decent audience is going to realise and buy into that part of the premise of the film. Yeah, It's much, and, and the fact that there's that tension, like who is going to make a sound <laughs> in the room as well as on the screen is what makes it so enjoyable. And that's, I think, why it's playing so well in, in cinemas. You know, as I say, We'll talk about his box office performance in in, in a yeah, moment, yeah. but it's doing well.
0: And, and Adam Avery, who the the Double Decker Man, um, I, th- I was just looking back at it. It's quite rich that he was attacking the, the rice cake man because in a double decker, aren't there? I'm sure there's bits of puffed rice in it that are really crunchy.
1: Do you know, it's been so long since a double decker I can't remember, but there's there's definitely there's a, something a, there's a textured component.
0: Yeah. There's it's not, we're not there. talking
1: about a Mars bar here. Answers are the this there's, there's, there's roughage.
0: <laughs> there's roughage. There is roughage in there. And of course, other chocolates are available. Right. Well, let's crack on with the top 10. Let's do that. Um,. Because, uh, well, there's there's a couple of surprises in there. That n- n- not least, number 10, um, which we have zero correspondence on for one reason or another, which is Duck, Duck, Goose.
1: Yes, the critical um, reaction. It, no, you? no, the critical reaction to this film has been like A Quiet Place. Nobody has said anything. And it's, it's just kind of an animated film. I think it was made in China and then dubbed over with, with an American voice cast. It wasn't screened for critics before it was released. I didn't read a single review of it. Mm. It's obviously doing business because it's the Easter holidays. Yeah. Um, but that's that's it. I think that There's nothing it. to report.
0: I mean, yesterday, uh, my, my younger daughter wanted to um, go to the movies and we'd sort of missed the this time frame for all the real kiddie movies. She's already seen uh, Black Panther and um, uh, Coco, but she wanted to see one of those again. Neither of those were on. Um, and all that was left was Duck, Duck, Goose. And she said... I think I'll just go and do my homework at home. <laughs> so that was her review without having seen it. Um, but at number nine, uh, Blockers.
1: Yes, this, this I haven't seen. It's a raunchy comedy about three parents trying to derail their teenage daughter's plans for a post-prom romance, if we can put it that way. Mm. I was on holiday when this screened and I haven't had a chance to catch up yet.
0: Same, same. Um, we actually we've got we've got a little bit of correspondence on this. This is from Emily Lewis, who says, "I'm writing this to you the day after seeing Blockers at my local World of Cine. I enjoyed the film, but I didn't expect it to stay with me the way it has." I was just so happy to see a lesbian coming-of-age, coming-out story in a mainstream comedy. Sam's story was played out alongside those of her two straight friends as just another part of teenage life. I'm now a fabulous (laughs) 24-year-old, those are words. Um, But had I seen this 10 years ago whilst growing up in rural Wales, it really would have been an unbelievably positive influence on my self-esteem. At an age when you're looking for cues that you'll be accepted for who you are, it's strange when, although you're told being gay is normal, an exploration of the experience is inexplicably non-existent in most popular films and books.' Although I've sought after uh, sought out many fine LGBT films over the years, this kind of inclusion is in a mainstream movie as a fully drawn character and not as a joke or a villain is really what's needed to feel truly accepted. It's also the kind of thing my straight peers and parents would have been more likely to see. Let's demystify the lesbian once and for all. Leaving the cinema, I felt that things maybe are getting better and everything really will be all right in the end. That's from Emily, and you know, you know what I love about that is that that moment, that little section where she says um the the lesbian characters uh, portrayed as just another part of teenage life because I get the same thing seeing black characters in movies I, I don't want everything to be suddenly about them being black if the movie's not about race mm-hmm. they can just be there because I don't know if you notice when you look around we're just there, <laughs> you know, <laughs> same as anyone else. So that, that that's a lovely thing to see. And obviously we'll probably talk a little bit more about yes, mainstream we're... representation of this kind of thing when we get on to, uh, to Love, Simon.
1: Yes, um, yes. that I mean, that does what Blockers seems to do with that storyline writ large across the whole. Yeah,
0: time. I really want to see Blockers now. Um, okay, at number eight, we have Ghost Story. Yes,
1: and that's the other one that I missed when I was on holiday. It's Andy Nyman's adaptation of his own stage play um i haven't seen it it's apparently very scary
0: that's, that's what i've heard um i've not seen it either but uh i'll tell you what um simon burgess has and he says it's difficult to review ghost stories without giving spoilers away so i'll be very careful in what i say thank you simon if you're after some good jump scares and some nervous laughs it executes those beautifully also alex law should be praised for a performance that knocks it out of the park it's a good cast but he outshines them all however I do have issues with the story itself. Initially, the plotting teases a new postmodern take on portmanteau horror with the individual cases not resolving in the usual way but building to something more climactic. But the script usually resolves itself by using a trope that we've all seen before and this left me disappointed as the credits rolled. Oh. Um, and actually, it's quite mixed, I have to say, uh, so some of the correspondence we got on, uh, on the ghost stories. Um, Jez Garrett says, uh, Ghost stories, a poor episode of Inside Number 9 stretched out over 90 minutes. The three individual stories aren't gripping enough. There used to be a horror comic for kids in the 80s called Scream, I don't remember that, that had better, scarier stories. Very average film. If you want a decent, jumpy horror with British actors, have a look at Severance, which I did love. Um, and Othney, Othniel Smith, Othniel Smith, I think is right. Brilliant performances, highly atmospheric cine- cinematography, but too slow. And anyone who's ever seen the film TV, which inspired the filmmakers, will be able to predict the ending, but still too scary to watch at night. So pretty pretty mixed bag. Yeah, but I was happy to
1: see First Positive Correspondent negative First Correspondent picked out Alex Lawther for praise and he mm. was terrific in a Black Mirror episode called Shut Up and Dance. That yes, was part was. of season three.
0: I know who that is now. Yes. I didn't know right. who that was. and now it I do.
1: Just carried a very, very challenging role if you've not seen Shut Up and Dance. I think it's it's, it's one of the hour-long episodes. It's not mm-hmm. when they started going crazy with the timings on that um, yeah. series, but it's, if that's you a good one. if you enjoyed them <laughs> in Ghost Stories, do seek out Shut Up and Dance. It was I think it's probably my favourite Black Mirror episode. To good do. shout.
0: All right, uh, at number seven, we've got The Greatest Showman. I think still, that's been covered. It's it's just killing it. It's 15, killing it.
1: 15 weeks on, and it's still making an awful lot of money. And um, I think... My suspicion is that the success is down to repeat business because 15 weeks, is that's not just a success. No. That's ridiculous. I think that it made a million a week for more weeks than any film has done since either Titanic or The Full Monty. I mean, we're talking about a a once-a-generation success streak here. It's crazy.
0: I guess when you've got songs that That also adds to that repeat viewing thing because the songs are in your head, you want to see them again, you want to maybe sing along in your head or if they might even have sing alongs out there as well. I know my my eldest daughter has already learnt one of the songs on the piano. no, oh, I'm she sorry sings it every day, you know like i Mark famously said on this show that there's not a memorable song in there um. But I can remember a number of the songs and I've never even seen the movie. <laughs> um, so number six, we have another incredible performer, Black Panther.
1: Yeah, and that's been around for eight weeks now, sitting on 49 million from the UK alone. I mean, what I love about Black Panther is this success was basically there for the taking for mm. years. And it was only through studio bias and cowardice that nobody stepped up to make it until Agreed. now. Um it's like that kind of wittertainment motto, you know, how do you make a mainstream superhero blockbuster with a majority black cast? Mm. You just make just a mainstream it. superhero blockbuster <laughs> with a majority black cast. It's that simple. Yeah. And Marvel did. And look, what's happened?
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it, the thing that struck me and the thing I heard a lot of the stars and people involved in the production saying as well was that they were surprised that it hadn't happened before. You know, the idea that we're not ready for black heroes is is, is a nonsense and has been a nonsense for a long, long time. You know, I mean, you could trace it all the way back to like something like fresh prince of bel-air you know that right. it's just such a huge success it still gets played and, re-
1: and repeated We're more than ready it just hasn't been done it's crazy and you look back at the success of the Blade films as well and yeah. done, particularly Blade 2 which is Blade two, yeah. totally wonderful and I don't remember that being looked at as some kind of niche concern that only black audiences would turn <laughs> out for it's weird but uh, you know
0: like Love, Simon like a lot of the, the films that are coming out now hopefully it will be the start of something
1: right of something course we're, we're definitely at a junction point it feels that in, way, in, it? in film history where we're, we're Studios are going to learn that there's more than one way yeah. to kind of tell a story, more than one uh, viewpoint through which you can tell a story. Yeah,
0: and hopefully I'll get some more work. Okay, and number five, <laughs> I, love, I love
1: Dogs. Talk, I mean, look, talking about telling stories from particular viewpoints, mm. this Wes Anderson's new stop motion animation. This, I sh- thought I would be a total open goal for this film. Huge admirer of Wes Anderson. Uh, love references to golden age Japanese cinema. That's very, very me. It's stop motion animation. It's got a kind of anti-cat agenda, which I'm very on board with <laughs> being allergic to cats. I kind of left the cinema. I mean, I, I was entertained and incredibly impressed by the film while I was watching it. But I kind of left and thought, what exactly is this for? What does, what does right. the purpose does the film serve? Apart from being testament to the incredible skill of the animators and the model makers. Uh, and also Alexandre Desplan's score is really, really good. It's so kind of hermetically sealed off from any kind of tangible human experience, for me it just didn't grab me on anything other than a technical level, which is a new experience for Wes Anderson. And I think people who generally don't get along with Wes Anderson films say that about all of his stuff even films like Royal Tenenbaums uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, which I find, you know, that's they're very, (laughs) uh, you know, they're works of artifice and beautifully curated little Mm. miniatures, but I, I find them moving and kind of engaging as well. This, I will try it again. You know, I, I'm, I'm willing, you know, I love Wes Anderson enough to 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 go back, give it another Definitely. crack in case the, the fault is mine. But it just, it didn't connect with me in the way that his previous stuff has done.
0: Fair enough. I mean, I, I've been umming and ahhing about it because it does look in, intriguing. And, and, and as you say, technically, it looks really interesting. But I just, I've never, I I was thinking about his films when this came out and I've just never seen enough of his films that I like. I I thought maybe I liked half of them when I actually added it up.
1: No, no, Rushmore. Did you Rushmore? Though, sure, really liked Rushmore. Yeah, because World Ten I found an
0: annoying. Grand Budapest, yeah, like like you say, artifice, but I it left me cold. You know, and that's some something about his quirk always <laughs> always leaves me cold. I'm sorry about that. Um, but there's there's a, there's a good bit of opinion from uh, from other people anyway who know a lot more than me, such as Andy Coffey, who said uh, I listened to Mark's review of Wes Anderson's new classic. Yes, I'm calling it that already, The Isle of Dogs, earlier in the week, and was interested in the seemingly very varied ways you could read the film. Um, I saw the film yesterday, and it's a a veritable patchwork quilt of little nuggets of symbolism. I almost wish I was back at uni so I could critique it properly. I've had eight hours sleep on it, and my thoughts are that The Isle of Dogs is very much like Sylvia Chomey? Chomé's?
1: Sylvain Chomet, yeah.
0: That, French animator. You'd said it a lot better than me. The Illusionist, uh, as both are love letters to their respective locations. Chimney being Edinburgh and Anderson, Japan and its unique culture. Anderson clearly dotes on Japan's history of art and storytelling through animation as he brings to life multiple mediums and stitches them together with ease. So That's, that's an excellent email from Andy. Um, just quickly on this, the, there seems to be a bit of a split on whether it's a love letter to Japan or whether it's a really touristy kind of oh look some sushi like,
1: yes i mean to me it's the same kind of portrayal of japan as royal tenenbaums was of new york grand budapest was of eastern europe it's just it's the wes anderson lens i mean it comes from a place i think of uh, admiration and scholarship what is difficult with isle of dogs that hasn't been difficult about his previous films is imagining the version that is lol funny accents it wouldn't necessarily be that different from what Wes Anderson has made, even though that wasn't his intent. So the gap between the uh, his kind of, you know, arm's length, fastidious, uh, oh, look at this wonderful society here mm. approach is much, much closer to the stereotype um version of that with this film than it has been for any of his others. Right. Okay. Apart from perhaps the Darjeeling Limited, the one that was set in India on the, yeah, on the train drive.
0: Another one I didn't like. Jeez, you just reminded me of more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm going to kick off with some correspondence for the next one, uh, number four, because there is, I'm I'm not joking here, there's just tons of it. Um, Number four is Love, Simon, uh, a huge film, it turns out. Um, I'll kick off with Alex Bass, who says, I saw this film at a preview a month back, and having had a long time for my thoughts to settle, it's safe to say that I really did not like this movie at all. No. Yeah, crazy. I wasn't expecting that to be, I just thought, pull this one out of the top, because it, it... it, it threw me. From the opening narration, I had a few problems. Um, from Simon's normal life, where he gets given a car for his birthday from his rich and privileged parents, throwing in as many references so target demographic can instantly relate and picture themselves within the role... Being just over the age that the characters are meant to be, as opposed to looking like fully grown adults walking around in a school, I didn't find any of the characters convincing to how people my age actually act. And I found myself cringing at a lot of the humour, especially the the assistant principal character or whoever that was. I personally find Simon to be a slight hypocrite. I'm aware this bit... Oh, I see, yeah this bit's been uh, censored it's <laughs> in been, my email. It's been redacted says, for spoiler Yeah, it's been redacted. And then, then it says, I'm aware this bit may be censored, but I guess it was pretty convenient that Blue happened to be attractive as well. While it was great that we can have a mainstream LGBT film made by Hollywood, I would find it much nicer if the movie was more focused on being good rather than being progressive. And i, sh- I that's the end of that email. I should just say that is pretty much... One of the very few negative ones I've I've seen. The rest is great. I just I thought I'd kick off with that one. No, that's interesting. To...
1: And I th- I think that what's what strikes me about that email is that a lot of the faults that that email have found in the film, they are in the film. Mm. I just don't believe the faults. I think it's because Love Simon is deliberately trying to work in the John Hughes tradition, where you have that wish fulfillmenty house that you know you wished your parents to yeah. afford. And the friends aren't normal friends, but they're all slightly heightened types. And the teacher is a uh, crazy eccentric who would be drummed out of the education system in the real world. In the film, he has to be there to be this kind of comic uh, you know, th- uh, character for the, the the main characters to bounce off in these little asides. Um, it's all true what's in that email, but it's just, for me, that's what makes the film so beautiful. It's going back to this established method of... Uh, making teen comedies mm. and, and doing it in a way with, with a, a life experience that just hasn't been addressed by that genre properly before.
0: Yeah, and like Black Panther, what a mad thing that we've not seen it on, right. on a mainstream level. Um, this is a bit more of the uh, the flavour of things in terms of our, our, our listeners' correspondence. Um, who's this from? This is from Kevin. Uh, he says, I left the film physically shaking and breathing heavily. This is not a bad thing. The reason I felt this way is that I've never seen a film that resonates with me so much. Growing up, I was just like Simon. I had a normal life. Everyone thought and expected me to be straight. So I tried to suppress my sexuality to fit in with everyone else. I've been out for 10 years and I've been with my husband for the majority of those 10 years and married for two. My husband and I completely agree that if we had seen this film growing up, our lives would have been different. Having seen someone who seemed straight but was gay would have made me realise that it was possible to be both. The parents' reaction in the film made me think about my own parents' reaction to coming out. Yes, it was difficult for me, but it was a change in their son that they hadn't expected, and now I understand that. I really would like everyone who wants to understand what it's like for a gay man trying to come out to see this film. The more people understand how difficult it is, the better. And I I think it's... That's it's, that's a beautiful thing, and there's there's so much personal correspondence like this. So It's obviously struck a chord, right? And that, right. that John Hughes reference is great because John Hughes, all his films were flawed, but they 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 did hit you in in the in the stomach. There was something core there that felt personal, even right? Though they, there's, it was there's big,
1: there's a truth at the heart of it about the teenage experience, even if what's happening on screen doesn't isn't entirely in step with you. And what I loved about the the coming out sequences in Love Simon is that the reactions of the people he talks to aren't ideal and you kind of sit there and think yeah okay okay this is this is really kind of speaking to how these things do work or you know rather than how they ideally should work
0: mm, mm. okay uh let's move on with the top 10 then uh, number three we've got another monster ready player one
1: yes which is on i think 11.5 million pounds after two weeks and is playing on 635 screens which is more than any other film in the top 10 with the exception of one which we shall come to
0: okay uh, I, I saw the uh, the Ready Player One movie at uh, the, the premiere and for me the most exciting part was um, seeing Spielberg speak yeah. in front of a DeLorean the movie bored me it was just a real shame <laughs> um, uh, and number two we have A Quiet Place yes which we've already touched on which we've already yeah
1: we spoke about it, but it's you know 2.7 million in a week is a great result for a horror film that's not part of a franchise
0: yeah yeah fantastic and um on the whole people seem to be really affected by this as well it seems to really like get into get under your skin somehow mm-hmm. one of those kind of films i can't wait to see it although i won't be going alone because i'm a bit of a chicken and at number 1 that means
1: it is peter Rabbit, four weeks at number 1 32.2 million pounds so far outpacing paddington 2 by 8 million what so there no. we are no, and no, that's fair enough. my problem with this film is the same as everyone's problem with this film it isn't peter rabbit
0: yeah yeah, I mean, I, I can't really understand why Beatrix Potter has been brought into it.
1: Well, it's brand recognition. I mean, that's the only conceivable reason is that when you're releasing this at Easter time, it's a story about a bunny that people are already familiar with. Right, so you know Raymond
0: Rabbit is not... You could, Rabbit, not, this
1: you could the same. do Donald Gleeson and Rose Byrne doing mouse hunt in the Lake District and that would be a good film. And it's the fact that saying, no, 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 we're going to change that we're going to you know borrow from beatrix potter's mm. own work and legacy and besmirch it yeah. i would say obviously the parents of certain cast members would disagree with that but that's uh, that's I, my opinion
0: i haven't succumbed yet my, my children haven't forced me in yet so we'll see we'll see how that goes for me i'll let you know in due course now the big movie this week just in terms of size
1: big is, in every sense
0: is is, is is rampage you know yeah big in every sense uh it's, it stars dwayne the rock johnson um and of course naomi harris who uh we're gonna have a little word within a second um my uh, conversation with her happened a few days ago um the movie comes out this week um robbie's just said to me off air that he wrote an essay on this movie
1: there's a lot to dig into surprisingly
0: which is incredible I, I, and we can all find out more about that uh, after the conversation um which follows this clip
2: Last night he was 7 feet, 500 pounds. This morning he's almost 9 feet, pushing a 1,000.
3: Are you familiar with CRISPR?
2: Yeah, genetic engineering.
3: Uh, it's more like genetic editing. I am the only one who can cure him. Mm-hmm.
2: George, no! George! 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 It's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yes, I know you're scared. I'm gonna help you. Come.
0: And that was a clip from Rampage, and I'm joined by the movie star Naomi Harris. Naomi, well, how's not it going? By the star.
3: Well, the, I, mean, I mean, thank <laughs> you. <but> not really. <laughs> you're one of the
0: two stars. Is that fair to say? Uh, or one of the three, if you count the big monkey? I think. Oh, no, I think
3: we're going to say four, though. I think it's Dwayne Johnson, yeah. Jeffrey D. Morgan, mm-hmm. the gorilla played by Jason Lyle. So
0: the gorilla, and then is myself. And the gorilla is played by who?
3: Jason Lyle's.
0: Wow. Yeah. Okay, and was that a sort of Andy Circus situation? Exactly,
3: the- an Andy Circus situation. Yeah. And what he you- did an Andy Circus-esque performance cuz I think it's really like I think it's the heart of the movie, the relationship between oh, no Dwayne's character and this gorilla, and I think you wouldn't have that kind of pathos if it wasn't for Jason's performance.
0: I agree. Also, it made me wonder what you were looking at when you were playing Mm -hmm. opposite George, Mm -hmm. because I'm never sure with CGI because I don't know anything about it, Mm. whether, you know, you are looking at a man walking around like an ape with Mm -hmm. some things stuck to his face or whether it's like a tennis ball
3: on a giant stick. I thought it was going to be a tennis ball and it wasn't. It was Jason with lots of dots on his face.
0: That's better, At wearing a That's green
3: suit. And it's way better. That's better than a tennis ball. Much, much better, yeah. Because you have something to react off.
0: Yeah, you don't get a lot from a tennis ball, I find.
3: You don't get anything from a tennis ball, No, it's ball, probably actually. nothing. Yeah. That's true. <laughs>
0: now, I, I did a press junket for a movie once. I was in a movie once oh,
3: a time. Oh, really? Yeah. Which one was that? It was
0: called Life on the Road. Um, oh, it was a, a interesting. movie of The Office. David Brent. It was a Ricky oh, Gervais well, thing. Okay. And uh, I found that I was saying the same thing so many times Mm -hmm. that I nearly went mad. Right, Um, yes. But Mm -hmm. for the benefit of our five live listeners, without losing your mind, (laughs) can you set up what this movie Rampage is all about and where your character fits in?
3: Um, So Rampage is a big fun action and adventure movie um, with a lot of heart as well. And, um, and also an incredible amount of humor. It's way funnier than I expected it to be. Um, uh, it's a fantastic ride and it has amazing special effects as well. We have the same people and um, it's Peter Jackson's company that did the special effects. Okay. And they're going on to do Avatar next and they're really like the best in the business. So the special effects are basically as cutting edge as they, they can possibly be. Um, and I play Kate Caldwell. And she's a doctor, she's a geneticist, and she creates a virus that infects the gorilla that's Dwayne Johnson's character, best friend. Nicely done. And um, because she feels so guilty about that, because basically this virus turns him into this mutant, aggressive, giant creature, um, and because she feels so guilty about that, she then teams up with him and goes on a journey mm. to find the cure and save the city of Chicago.
0: Expertly done.
3: Thank you. And
0: you know what I like about... Most
3: people don't actually ask me to set up the story, so... Well, it's good, good. you
0: know, because it gives gives our listeners a chance to say, oh, okay, is this film for me? Mm. I would say it's for everyone because you're spot on it is a big popcorn Mm -hmm. movie.
3: It's a popcorn movie with absolutely everything. Because, you know, when a popcorn movie is done right, it has the humor, it has the heart, and it also has you on the edge of your seat. Mm -hmm. And very rarely do they have all of those ingredients. You know, very rarely do you see like a popcorn movie truly work. But this one literally has everything. It definitely works is brilliant. And I'm very I, proud I of it. I
0: literally bought popcorn um to go and watch it because I felt it was gonna be that Yeah, kind of it
3: experience. needed you needed the popcorn.
0: Unfortunately yeah. I watched it at Warner Brothers oh. and there was no eating allowed in the uh in the no. cinema. No So I had to smell my popcorn oh my
3: gosh. for an hour and a half.
0: Very frustrating.
3: That's really but, frustrating. Yeah. I sneak how can in. you sell a popcorn movie and not allow bonkers. people to eat popcorn bonkers. Outrageous
0: but this is one of the things I did like about I was drawn to about your character um, because you know, a lot of the time in these big sort of popcorn movie deals, um, there's you know a lack of dimensions to to certain key characters. Yes, and your character is smart yeah. and tough. Yep. But at the same time, flawed. Yes. You know, w- when we meet her, she's she's got this burden of of guilt. Yeah. And that was a nice in I found, mm. and it, it made it gave more dimension to the mm. character. So I was a bit more emotionally yeah. involved than I might be. Yeah. In another,
3: And also the other great thing about her is that she's not the kind of adjunct to the, the male, because in most of these action movies, the woman is the kind of damsel in mm-hmm. distress who's dragged along mm-hmm. screaming throughout the journey. But Kate <laughs> isn't like that. You know, Kate has just as much to offer to the journey as um, Dwayne's character. And they kind of need each other. They're equals and they become this amazing team.
0: Definitely. And it's another thing I picked up on very early. And I was really satisfied that we didn't launch straight into some will they won't they love affair thing. It was just like, this is the problem, this is the situation. Yeah. And both characters have a certain expertise to bring to that situation. Exactly.
3: Who has time for a love affair when the city know, of Chicago it's ridiculous. is being threatened?
0: Uh, and you were sensibly dressed, which I also <laughs> appreciate. <laughs>
3: I really... You know, that's a very important point. Because so often, like, you're saving the world in high heels yeah, and ridiculous. a miniskirt or whatever. It's crazy. You want practical attire.
0: There you go. Now, <laughs> the last time... I saw you uh, in a movie. You were playing Paula in Moonlight, Mm -hmm. which, you know, I always said, if I ever met you, I have to tell you, that was an unbelievable job. I mean, you did incredibly. Thank you. But the reason I bring it up is it's well documented that Moonlight was made for a a couple of million. Less than a
3: couple of million, Less than that even. Okay.
0: Acquiring the rights to the video game Rampage Mm. cost 33 million.
3: Are you serious? Yeah.
0: Um, so it's before. Owns
3: those you know, that's before you we even get. Yeah, I'm serious. I did not know that. Yeah, that's
0: there you crazy. go. Crazy. That's before we even get into production wow. costs. So, could you tell us a little about like, what it's like, the difference to do a movie like Moonlight, a tiny little thing mm. like that, and, and this literal monster? Of a movie,
3: yeah. The, dif- the difference is, like with Moonlight, um, it's all it's all centered on relationships, and it's all in a room with your fellow actors, and it's all about the dynamics between you guys, and that's it. There are no special effects, there's no CGI, there are no stunts or what have you. It's just acting and relating. Whereas with uh, Rampage. Uh, I would say that we were doing thirty percent of the movie, and seventy percent of the movie happens after our job is done. Almost like because it's all happening. Yeah, exactly. It's all happening in post, which is why when I saw the movie in Los Angeles, I was totally blown away (laughs) because I was like oh my gosh, I did not know it was going to look like sure. that. You know, because Brad, our director, he would say like, at this point, the the creatures are 10 meters high. Now they're 20, now they're 30, now they're 40, you know. And you try and imagine that, but you couldn't really. And so it wasn't until I saw it all edited together that I was I was like, wow, these animals are truly terrifying. And it was the first time that I've watched a movie and been surprised, because normally I know the story, I know what's going to happen. You get a sense of your surroundings exactly. as you're shooting. But this was it was all like a waking a dream? Me.
0: Seeing you in it yeah. must have been such a trip. Yeah, and Brad payton actually—he's got quite a long history, successful history in animation, mm. and that makes sense to me. Watching this movie because there's mm. so much care and attention on those fantastical moments. Yeah, there's a real sense of heft that sometimes you don't get mm. from big monster movies. Mm. If they well, feel a bit lightweight. Whereas there yeah. was, there's moments where you're looking at George. And the breeze is hitting his fur, mm. and it, he felt so real, you yeah. know. And that's that's a special achievement. Yeah, it is special. By the really guys in post,
3: achievement. Well, it's this Peter Jackson's company. So. Yeah. Well, there you yeah. go.
0: There's a scene where you and uh, Dwayne the Rock Johnson are cornered in an alleyway trying to steal this helicopter, mm-hmm. and a fight sequence uh, occurs. This is kind of a two tiered question. Firstly, how much physical stuff did you get involved in in, in the shooting? Mm. And secondly, how big are Dwayne's arms?
3: Uh, let's start with Dwayne's arms. Because okay. in Duane's that scene arms, in the alleyway, yeah. I saw
0: you in close proximity to, the, yeah. to one arm. Yes. And I felt I could fit a Naomi Harris and a half maybe yeah, in I, one arm yeah
3: I agree I agree they are pretty ginormous and I have to say my character at that moment really is in awe of Dwayne and that was the moment as well as me Naomi Harris I was like this guy is amazing like because his body is just like a machine basically.
0: did you ever do that playful pat thing where you just say hey Dwayne and tap him on the arm and go like whoa
3: I've done a granite. playful punch in fact and thought oh my gosh it's just like rock He's so hard. It's amazing.
0: And yet, by all accounts, one of the loveliest men in the world. I mean, from all reports that I've had.
3: No, he's absolutely incredible. He really is. To give you an example of how amazing he is, lots of the scenes in the movie weren't actually in the script. So, for instance, the, the moment when I punch the baddie in the face that wasn't actually in the script that was Dwayne and he said look I really think that Kate's character you know she needs this moment and then there was another moment where like I smashed down the glass door that again was Dwayne who was like yeah I think Kate should do this actually I think it would be really good for her character and like most actors they just want to hog the limelight and keep all those special moments for themselves Mm. but Dwayne is so generous he's always like okay what can I do to help you have your moment and to stand in the spotlight
0: that's very unusual for actors and yeah, and he's 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 got that genuine charm. He, yeah. he can really pull off almost anything.
3: He can light up a whole room as well. A,
0: and now, I, obviously, I eternally think of him as Maui.
3: Yes. Uh, oh my uh, gosh, he was brilliant in that. What there. a
0: performance! Yeah. He, he's he's just great. Uh, I would love to meet him, but at the same time, maybe feel slightly intimidated. I mean, are he you is, not meeting him? I'm not meeting him. No. Oh no. my gosh,
3: he's just one floor away. He's you don't one get floor to away? meet him.
0: Okay, I'm going to hunt him down. Yeah, I think so I know I think what he you looks should. like. <laughs> Listen, there's one thing I really wanted to ask before we ran out of time, which yeah. is, um, do you know how we're related?
3: No. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs>
0: okay. Um, so a long time ago, yeah, in the adaptation of a book by Zadie Smith, mm-hmm. you played a character called Clara. Yep, and the, the series was uh, I think a four-parter,
3: mm-hmm.
0: Channel Four called I White love Teeth that
3: series. Yeah,
0: an adaptation of the book by Zadie Smith. Zadie Smith is my sister. No way! Yeah. And you played Clara, and who you know, went is to loosely Smith. Based, based on my mum. Oh! so. In some ways, you are my mother. I
3: am your mother, yeah.
0: Even though we're the same age.
3: Wow. And I went to university with Zadie.
0: That's right. Yeah. That's right. You came up in conversation just last week. What do you remember about White Teeth? Just this is a personal question. The listeners might be bored.
3: Um, (laughs) What do I remember? Oh, my gosh. I can't remember the actor's name. Was it Phil Davis?
0: I think so. He played Archie.
3: Phil Davis, yeah. Yeah, he was my husband. I'm going to go with that. I may not make that up but this okay. is weird um, but he was he's just such a great actor and such a nice human being and you know I wasn't that was only my second thing that I'd done yeah, it was early I'd on, done right? 28 Days Later before that I was going to say it was and 28 then,
0: Days Later that moment where you thought this is it I'm, I'm in another I'm on another Rung, I'm on another
3: it was it, I thought oh this is it this is the start of my career and then it was like silence after that for I couldn't get a job for like really? eight months I was sending out all these letters to casting directors going <laughs> <still here>. please <laughs> employ me somebody <laughs> and I just couldn't get any work so it was actually a really sad moment in my career wow. and now I know that that is just the roller coaster of this profession mm-hmm. you know sometimes you're in sometimes you're out and you just got to enjoy the ride so what is in Next for you. Next for me is a nice long break. Oh really? I'm like I work hard and then um I always like to take time out and suck up life and that's what keeps me inspired, you know, because ultimately what I'm trying to do is reflect life back on screen. Sure. And if I if I stay too long in this profession then I lose that, I feel. So I understand. Yeah. Well
0: don't take a break for too long because we love you. Thank you. you. Aww, <laughs> thank you. And uh, yeah lovely to meet you, take
3: lovely care. Lovely to meet you too son <laughs> <laughs> Thanks mum
0: <laughs> and that was me, yeah, tarting it up with uh, Naomi Harris, one of the stars of Rampage, but uh, all importantly Robbie, what did you make of it?
1: Well look, it was interesting during the interview there that you both referred to Dwayne by his full title, Dwayne the Rock <laughs> Johnson, like Paul Thomas Anderson or Daniel D. lewis and what you, I've started to realise about Dwayne The Rock Johnson is that he has, in his own way, this kind of auteurist stamp that he puts on his work. Mm-hmm. And after watching a film like Rampage, you kind of think nobody could have pulled this off but Dwayne The Rock Johnson. I came out of the fil- film thinking about Daniel D. lewis a lot because Daniel Day-Lewis, you know, obviously wildly acclaimed as you know a great actor, one of the best, if not the best of his generation. But I was trying to think, could he convincingly... <laughs> fist bump a giant albino gorilla I mean could he can you can you see you know Reynolds Woodcock doing with with the with George no it's a great point Dwayne the Rock Johnson is probably the only actor working in Hollywood today who could pull this off and it is a Dwayne the Rock Johnson film through Mm. and through and what Naomi said when she was talking about the relationship between uh Johnson's character, Davis Okoye, who's this primatologist who becomes embroiled in this crazy scientific disaster, and George the gorilla. She said this relationship is the heart of the movie. Now, you know, Rampage is not phantom thread in a zoo, but (laughs) the chemistry, and it is real chemistry that he has, his character has with this gorilla – really does make the film mean something. And so there's this lovely bit of, you know, friendship, almost like banter between them, because he is, a, as a primatologist, he can sign and gorillas can understand the sign language. And, and sign the signing
0: back. has the timing of good dialogue.
1: Yes, right, exactly. And and But he is, as an actor, completely invested in that. He is signing to a real gorilla, as far mm. as, you know, anyone watching this film is concerned. And it means that when you get to the crashy, bangy, roary stuff, which you do pretty quickly, and then that sustains for basically the entire second and third act of the film, Mm -hmm. it means something. And if I was to tell you that at the end of this film, I did not have, as a result of this friendship between Dwayne the Rock Johnson and the giant albino gorilla, I did not have a tear in my eye. I would be lying. Because (laughs) page did connect with me on that level, as well as having that visceral thrill of seeing great special effects executed well, and also great Comic banter between the different characters. Naomi Harris's character is incredibly funny. Dwayne Rock Johnson, obviously very funny. Jeffrey Dean Morgan as well. Now, I gather his performance in Rampage, he plays this uh kind of a secret agent government guy who is from some shadowy agency that nobody really knows where he's from. Mm-hmm. I gather this performance does owe quite a lot to his work in the Walking Dead TV series, which right. I, I'm not I've not seen him in that. that okay as a standalone thing, it's very, very funny. And he is given a lot of corny action movie one-liners none of which I think are recitable on air, probably. No, but just, so. he delivers them with the, in the full knowledge of a guy who knows that he is, you know, this is dumb, this is good, dumb screenwriting. You know, this is stuff that people will remember and quote each other and laugh about on the way out of the cinema. So it's just, you know, the craftsmanship, it's, it's a stupid film. Of course it's a mm. stupid film. It's about, mm. you know, three enormous creatures laying waste to a city. But it's a stupid film done right. And all of the excuses that people make for other stupid films that are not good... Uh, Rampage absolutely pulls those off beautifully. Part of me wonders as well how smart you can really be while talking about Rampage, because on one level, all the film wants to do is entertain, because it is consistently very funny all the way through. The action sequences are very, very well done all the way through. The thing with giant monster films is that the monsters always mean something, even, I think, if the film is trying to make them mean something or not, and that's true right back to King Kong. If you think about Cloverfield, I mean, Cloverfield Mm -hmm. the recent ones that's the example that, you know, that film completely bounced out of the September 11th attacks and it was about a city in meltdown, people not knowing where these students, the, you know, this entire civilization yeah. felt like it was collapsing around them as a result of some weird incursion from under the surface of the earth that nobody knew was there. So these films always speak to their moment, I think, and with Rampage there's a really interesting, the two the two main villains of the piece um, are this mega-rich brother and sister played by Melon Ackerman and Jake Lacey, and whether it was intentional at the writing stage or not, they felt to me there was something a little bit Ivanka and a little bit Donald Jr. about the way in which they dressed and carried themselves.
0: Possibly. And the film is, you
1: know, these guys are, you know, they've set up this experiment. I mean, look... The giant monsters. That's not a unfortunate side effect of the experiment. That is the experiment. The experiment's mm-hmm. called Project Rampage. The the aim was always to breed these killer creatures, and then for whatever reason I can't off the top of my head I can't remember. But that was the aim, and to bring them to Chicago so they could harvest the genetic material. And that's why they all they all end up tearing the city down. Um, the idea that super rich people would pursue further wealth at the expense of ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the population without a thought for their well being is something that speaks to. Our moment now. I don't know if the film is trying to do it or not, but it's there, and it's 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 there to be picked up on if you want to pick up on it. Also, the September 11th stuff is is still kind of loud and clear there. The 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 part where Chicago itself is sort of being decimated by these creatures obviously borrows massively from news footage of the September 11th attacks. The kind of clouds of ash billowing down the streets and the mm-hmm. skyscrapers toppling over. And you know, it, 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 there's an argument to say that that is a bad taste move. You know, you're kind of borrowing from this horrendous, unthinkable real-life tragedy in order to to make a popcorn entertainment and, you know, to, to to kind of titillate people and excite them. But these kind of films have always done this. And if you look, you know, Dwayne Johnson recently, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, has appeared in uh, San Andreas, the other Brad Payton film, you know, another film like Rampage that could only have been directed by a man called Brad, I think. Um, and then he's also in this film called Skyscraper that's coming out later this summer. All of these films involve him in toppling skyscrapers and wandering around cityscapes strewn with ash and rubble, rescuing people. Now, if you look back at how the 80s action movies worked, you know, particularly Arnold Schwarzenegger, but also actors like Sylvester Stallone, um, you know, everyone who was kind of working at that time, so many of those films were basically about re-prosecuting the Vietnam War so that Americans right. could go to the cinema and they could watch Vietnam being won. And it wasn't always Vietnam. It was things, you know, Rambo was obviously he was in the jungle fighting normal people. Um, but you know you had Schwarzenegger fighting Predator, but he would do it in the jungle in the way that the you know people wish that the American GIs have been able to do, come back victorious from this you know in- incredible battle. And in the same way, I think Dwayne Johnson is doing these kind of roles. He's showing people rescue efforts, relief efforts, where he's looking out for his family. You know he's rescuing his wife, he's rescuing his daughter, he's rescuing his kids. Family, family, family is always this recurring theme in Dwayne Johnson's films, and he is kind of reworking and replaying, replaying this relief rescue effort in his films over and over and over again. And that's why they they kind of, there's something more to them than just brainless entertainment, even though the brainlessness is is very much there to be enjoyed as well. So as I say, it's kind of, it's a film that works on different levels that you maybe don't expect it to. Um, but, you know, I, I really enjoyed it as a just straightforward entertainment, funny, you know, action packed, lots going on and and, and very kind of, Anything that's going to slow it down is just chopped away. We don't need it out the window. Let's get on with some more fun. But like all monster movies, it seems to be speaking to our time now. So yes, I was completely sold on Rampage. Did not expect that at all. And often when you know when studios have a film like this, they they set a review embargo where they say you know all the reviews have to be revealed at once. I have to say the response to this has been very mixed. I expected everyone to fall completely in line with me, but I would urge even sceptics to go and check this out.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, I I didn't expect to. Uh to feel anything for the movie and I feel exactly like you and we'll find out what the listeners think uh, after the news Um, there's uh, there's a bit of correspondence that's coming about this movie that I was (laughs) I have to say surprised to really enjoy um, Popcorn or No Popcorn in fact on on the subject of popcorn I should just say here because I know how people feel about popcorn and and, and the the code of conduct in the church here Um, I am very particular about which movies I bring popcorn into very particular
1: Nobody is going to hear the exactly. noise of popcorn rampage over popcorn, the popcorn. To me, I
0: was like, "Yes." Even Naomi said in the interview, "It's a popcorn movie. Bring your popcorn." You know, I'm not bringing popcorn into a quiet place. <laughs> Give me some credit, okay? I'm not even bringing a double decker. Um, so uh, yeah, there's some some correspondents, and actually, the first three I picked up, one's positive, one's negative, and one's sort of in the middle. There, I'm gonna I'm gonna um, stick start with the, the positive. Um, this is from uh, Mike DeGeorge who says those who are saying Rampage is a big, dumb, brainless action movie need to have their heads examined. In fact, I thought it tried too hard to be serious at times, especially when touching on the backstories of the main characters, which definitely wasn't needed. That said, when Rampage kicks the action into high gear, it goes into high gear. The introduction of Ralph the Wolf. I forgot he was called Ralph. Uh, to no, th- let's <laughs> just,
1: before, it, it may have been redacted, if they mention the third creature. Oh, yeah. Not mention it because the reveal of the Let third creature. See. It's in the trailer, but it I think is it's in the done trailer, so beautifully right. in the film, we should, we should not. Let me have a
0: little... No, I think we're good. We're good. Okay. <laughs> well done, though, Rob. Um, yeah, Ralph uh, uh, led to one of the most intense sequences I've seen in a while. And at the same time, made me want to cheer and took my breath away. The ending battle in downtown Chicago was a feast of CGI violence and destruction seldom seen before. Violent, unrealistic and glorious. And that's that's a good. I mean, of course, it's one of those things where, you know, if you get into the oh, well, that will never happen. This will never happen. Yeah. Then, you know, there's just no point in that. But isn't it interesting how with other films of the same ilk? You do find yourself doing that, and it's usually because the action or the character there's just not enough charm there to keep you just involved and, and keep your disbelief suspended. Whereas The Rock has got he's got so much charm, his chemistry with Don don't gorilla. really care. It is surprising. You know, the chemistry it's, it's is special. great. It's special. I mean, they've got. You know, in in those in those sign moments, they've it's almost like they've got this handshake that you want to learn with your with your <laughs> friends. You know, I, they're, they're they're great together. It really is. And an, um, special shout out to the uh, the actor who played George because it's a, it's actually a surprisingly great performance. Um, this is this is the one in the middle. Um, this okay. is from Charlie Wright, who's a feature sub editor at the Sun. Huh. So a, a pro email. Um, it says, "Dear Big and Biggerer." Emerged unscathed from a solo afternoon to, uh, trip to Rampage yesterday, mainly for a nostalgia buzz, having loved the 80s arcade game. Bizarrely, given the material, it took itself too seriously at times. I don't agree with that. Yeah. Um, doomed efforts to explain the hokum science slowed it down to a plod in the middle, and the paper-thin corporate villains, tellingly absent from the trailer, could have been done away with entirely, leaving it leaner and ten minutes shorter. But fun popcorn fodder all the same, and, well, The Rock. I'll probably see the sequel. Love the show, Steve, from Charlie in London. And that is it. Well, The Rock, you know? I mean, I can't think of anything he's done that's made a movie worse. You know? Right, exactly.
1: <laughs> and you can see studios use him for that reason. Why was he cast in the Baywatch remake? Mm. I mean, the get the an idea there. of the Baywatch Just remake. Get him in there. Is everyone knows what Baywatch is. Do they want to go and see the film again? Who knows? Oh, Dwayne The Rock Johnson's in it. Well, let's go and buy a ticket. That, that's, what he, that's what purpose he serves.
0: Exactly, and that fantastic point you make, you know, by extension, Daniel Day-Lewis was not saving Baywatch, you know, no. in, in no. any way, shape or form. But what it's led to is <laughs> a very ingenious text that has come in from JD, who says, can we please play Daniel or Dwayne for film roles? For example, who will play the new Han Solo? Um, and, I, you know, I'd love to hear some suggestions, perhaps of future franchises, maybe a, a reboot of Harry Potter. With
1: You could have just have them both as two mismatched yeah. cops on the, on the trail of some let's, serial Let's killer, reboot right twins. Right.
0: <laughs> Give us some more suggestions, Daniel or Dwayne or both. Uh, <laughs> and with the, with, with the power of CGI, you know, we could have double Daniel, double Dwayne, single George. I mean, there's so much we could do. Um, but from uh, from from we we've, we've still got time we got we got a bunch more films haven't we to review we have um, indeed we should um, probably should we start with the Titan
1: let's start with the Titan which is the first feature from a director called Leonard Ruff and Ruff by name and uh, well let's 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 press on this is a science fiction film set in the year twenty forty eight uh, with Earth becoming ever more uninhabitable because of various environmental and overpopulation-based catastrophes. So there's a plan B needed, and plan B comes in the shape of uh, an evacuation mission to Titan, which is the largest moon of Saturn. Now, Titan is not the most hospitable place in the uh, solar system, but Tom Wilkinson, a scientist, has a plan, and that is to effectively remodel human DNA, physical makeup, you know, on a genetic level, on a physical level, so that humans are effectively become aliens well suited to to living in Titan's hostile environment. And here he is uh, giving the, the Dragon's Den style pitch for this plan.
2: There is one place that gives us hope, Titan, the largest moon of Saturn. The only other place in our solar system with an atmosphere, primordial ecosystem, just like Earth, seconds before life was born. Liquid methane raining into huge oceans and lakes we can't swim in, and an atmosphere rich in nitrogen that we can't breathe. Too cold for to existing, fiercely hostile to life as we know it. Beyond the reach of space science, but not modern genetics. No longer trying to reshape planets, in our image, but evolving humanity into the stars. Imagine, with a few minor enhancements, you could breathe the air, swim in the waters, and survive the cold. What if Titan could become our home?
1: Just a few minor enhancements. So I'm just going to stick a <laughs> tentacle on here, and I'm just going to. So basically, From that pitch, you can see exactly where the film wants to go Mm -hmm. and what direction it's 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 going to head in. It gets there with absolutely no surprises along the way. There's this idea that a band of volunteers, uh, amongst whom the kind of central figure is Sam Worthington's heroic uh, air force pilot who's volunteered for this uh, this colonial mission off to off to Titan. They're all being undergoing this gene therapy, this this kind of treatment in a lab. And uh, the, as you you can kind of expect, the results become increasingly horrific. Bad motives bubble to the, the surface a lot along the way, um, but the experiment has to press on regardless because you you know the film wants to show you what's going on, um, and so. There's, there's this idea, is borrowing... The film is sort of notionally body horror, so it owes a very big debt to David Cronenberg's The Fly. There's also elements of Prometheus in there, elements of Avatar that go beyond Sam Worthington's involvement. You know, this this idea of a human being uh, transformed into another form of creature. Soylent Green, as well, is, is kind of bubbling away in there too. Hmm. But the, the kind of fundamental trick, or one of the fundamental tricks that this film misses, is that a film like The Fly is exciting and gripping because... Uh, Jeff Goldblum's Seth Brundle has to transform, not just physically in that film, but his, his entire kind of way of being transforms. You know, he, he is this kind of nerdy scientist who becomes this super potent, virile love god as a mm-hmm. result of the experiment. And then, of course, other things happen. Sam Worthington's character in this starts out as this heroic Air Force pilot. And he just is that kind of stoic hero throughout, you know, undergoing this therapy. He's good at fitness things. He becomes better at fitness things. He's good at swimming. He becomes better at swimming, blah, blah, blah. There's no kind of arc to the story whatsoever. It's just plateauing along until it reaches the end. And the way in which the plot is developed, and it's very difficult to, to articulate this without giving away spoilers. Mm. Forgive me if this sounds a bit vague, but the way in which the plot finds itself coming to the end It's no longer clear whether the mission is a good idea or not. It's no longer clear why people are going on the mission in the first place. It's no longer clear uh, who actually wants the mission to to be gone through with or not. Part of the problem is that so many... I think the the director, this being a first film, I mean, possibly this is the reason behind it, but the director doesn't seem to have a grip, uh, not only on the story, but what any character actually, what their motives are, Mm. who they should be, uh, what they're trying to achieve. Everyone is a kind of a muddle, and I think there's an awful lot of miscasting in this film. If you want to see performances that are not just bad acting but are people fundamentally in the wrong roles the titan is a great example of this because you have agnes dean for example uh playing who we're sort of told this character is a kind of a young hotshot geneticist who is basically tom wilkinson's sidekick yeah. in the lab but she doesn't carry herself like that she doesn't talk like that you know she looks like a work experience person who's there. you know kind of dress like a work experience person buzzes around like a work experience person. And no one, I think, has sat down and had a conversation and said, who is this person? What is she there for? You know, what's making her tick? What's motivating her to be a part of this? And that basically applies across the the, the entire board with this, with, I think, the exception of Tom Wilkinson, who is just playing Sinister Tom Wilkinson. Yeah, He does fine. And the thing is, you can do sci-fi at a low-budget, basically most of which takes place in one location very well. Alex Garland's Ex Machina is a perfect example of this. Basically three characters in a house, mm-hmm. in the woods, and it's juggling these enormous ideas, you know, the special effects in, uh, in, in, in Ex Machina. were are not, you know, cities falling down on the scale of rampage, but they were beautifully, beautifully achieved. And in the Titan, the transformations as they go on, like I don't want to give it away, but the, the, the kind of end product of this transformation sequence, it there reminded may,
0: there may or may not be the appearance of Crichton from Red Dwarf. Right. Or right.
1: But the to me, it was it was it was Douglas from the LARPAC adverts. I mean <laughs> all that was missing was the the trombone, you know, the <laughs> and that was it. just but the, the point the problem is by that point in the film, this kind of constant you know squeezing and molding around of the plot to just let's get this across the line let's just mm. get there by hook or by crook you you're so kind of disengaged that by the time this kind of you know transformed supposedly you know uber style character strides onto the screen you're just like and that's it yeah this is this is the the, the the reaction to that film can in fact be summed up with that noise
0: i think so too in fact my i remember there's a moment my wife just stood up and went no <laughs> there was still about half an hour to go, and from that point we just laughed our way to the end. really. It's interesting though, thinking about this film after rampage, isn't it, because in a way they should both be big action movies, obviously Titan hasn't got anything like the same kind of budget, but if it took itself a little less seriously or had had a bit more of a think about character arcs, it didn't need to be that complicated. No, right, Just exactly. Falls flat in every single way and becomes a bit of a ridiculous watch. Um, I'm even more fascinated to see a quiet place now because isn't, isn't that kid in it
1: as well? That's right, Noah Dupe who plays Sam Worthington, Sam Worthington's his, son. son, He's in it, and right? he's. I mean, I, I see everyone's cast. He is kind of. He's cast Absolutely help because he's a child the, he's playing the, a child. And, and, and a quiet <laughs> got that child right. as well. And we know yeah. that he can do quiet, so that's fine.
0: Yeah. Uh, actually, we got a couple more bits of correspondence on, on A Quiet Place uh, after our talk of, of snacks and, and silence. Um, this is from Matthew in, in London. He says, uh, it's not often a film's title is also instructions on where best to watch it, which is very <laughs> good. Uh, a film so tense in its quiet moments, I was reduced to letting my popcorn silently dissolve in my mouth. I've definitely done that. So as not to break the spell of nerve-shredding anxiety caused by the lack of sound a completely wonderful concept near flawlessly executed yes I have questions yes I have criticisms but they were so swiftly forgotten when the next set piece started that I honestly couldn't care less about them loved it and uh, and in a text uh, an anonymous text it says um, on the point of a quiet place it was so silent and uh, an encode complaint compliance and an encode compliant crowd, that my stomach decided to make noises at the quietest moments. No, terrifying. Me? My most embarrassing cinema experience. That's the worst, isn't it?
1: Because you can't, you just that's can't brutal. control that. There's no, there's no escape there's from that. Nothing you can there?
0: do. Um, let us know if you've uh, made some unruly bodily <laughs> noises in, in a <laughs> I quiet I mean, look, place. Within,
1: within reason. This <laughs> within isn't, reason. This isn't Mark and Simon that I hear. No, you know, that's we'll true. the will sort of Yeah, we don't have m-mothers. Mark done with us today. Um, so, I um, mean, something that's worth remembering no, no. about a Quiet Place as well, which has not been remarked on very much, is that Mm. this film was produced by Michael Bay, who is not known for his quietness. Yeah, so John Krasinski, who directed and and, and stars in A Quiet Place, he appeared in Bay's film 13 Hours of Secret Soldiers of Benghazi a few years ago. And that was, I mean, it seems like an incredibly smart career move in retrospect. That was, you know, not my favourite Michael Bay film, and I am actually a critic who has favourite Michael Bay films, so, you know. But that was, the fact that he was in that has obviously opened this door to working with Michael Bay in a producer capacity. I would have loved to have been in the meeting where Krasinski or whoever it was walks into Michael Bay's office. <laughs> Got this great film for you, Michael. It's about people being very quiet for one and a half hours. What are you saying? <laughs> what? But it worked. And actually, as a result of A Quiet Place having been so successful so quickly, mm. um, Bay and Krasinski have set up uh, another film called Life on Mars, which is a sci-fi thriller that I think he's basically going to go I don't know if he's directing, but he's certainly producing or involved in some way. But he, they're going to go straight into that off the back of this success.
0: Ah, that's, that's so. There
1: you go. You know, you denigrate Michael Bay. At well,
0: your some of us do. Some of us don't. <laughs> some of us do. Well, uh, give us something else that's new this this week, Robbie.
1: Yeah, let's talk about custody, which is a film from a French filmmaker called Xavier Legrand. Uh, it's his first feature. Um, he's a former child actor. He was in Louis Malle's uh, "Au revoir les enfants" many, many years ago. Um, but basically, as a first film. This is a a heck of a debut. Um, It's a small story, even quite a familiar one. Um, But it's handled with, I think, consummate skill and control of tone. And it has, at its core, three tremendous performances. Uh, The the premise is basically a married couple who are in the middle of obviously quite a bitter divorce and are thrashing out a custody arrangement for their 11-year-old son. They also have uh, an 18-year-old daughter... Um, but she, obviously, uh, being, being 18 years old, she can decide where she wants to live and it's no no issue. The son is the kind of basically the prize to be won in this divorce, but also the focal point for all of the aggression within the divorce, because he's being pulled between the two parents. Denis Menochet plays the father and Leah Drucker plays uh, the, the mother. Now, if you like me, you kind of your knowledge of French character actors all goes back to Amelie. You know, were people in Amelie or not? Is it that person? Is it that person? Neither of these actors were in Amelie. But Denis Menochet played the uh, farmer Perrier Le in Inglorious uh, the oh, yeah. Quentin Tarantino. Okay, yeah, I remember. Very wonderful opening scene with uh, with Hans Landa with uh, Christoph Waltz. Uh, and Lea Drucker was in a film called In My Skin, which was this kind of really ghoulish French body horror from a while back. But anyway, they they play the two parents. The film opens in this custody hearing where both, via their lawyers, are giving their arguments for, you know, oh, well, the kid should be with me for this reason, the kid should be be with me for that reason. And the film very, very cleverly walks this tightrope between dredging up suspicions about the father's character without outrightly confirming them. So there is a suggestion that there has been an element of spousal abuse and, and also kind of too strong corrective you know, grabbing of children's wrists and, you know, roughness with the children. But the the father kind of dismisses it and he explains, you know, weird behaviour like, oh, he's been sleeping in the van outside his his ex-wife's house. Well, I just want to be close to my children. And so the film is kind of setting up this uncertainty in your mind. And it's the same way when you hear about a case like this with people you know or with celebrities, Um, you have to, there's a degree of supposition, there's a degree of good faith that, you know, you can't come to a, a concrete conclusion on what has been going on. Now, how the film develops is it shows you the way in which this eleven-year-old kid, the pressure that he is put under while he is basically being bounced between these two his, his his parents, and the father in particular comes to view the custody battle as a competition to be won, and he won't back down over certain things. And he 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 tells other people, and he tells himself, I think to an extent that I oh, I want to know where my kids are living now. He's trying to track down where his ex-wife lives. I want to know where my kids are living because they're my kids, and I should be you know in charge of this. Mm-hmm. But there's 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 always this question of what are his motives? You know, why is he getting so involved in this? Why is he piling on so much pressure onto his kid? The kid played play by thomas uh, Thomas Tomaggioria, um, he's eleven years old as well. His performance in this film is so good. the kind of stress and strain crackling across his face that it kind of almost feels like it was obtained unethically. I mean, he is he's <laughs> under obviously under so much incredible pressure, the character and It's so vividly vividly expressed. The camera also legrand will position behind this kid's head almost as if you're, like, to say, X-ray vision, look at the cogs whirring away here, all of this incredible pressure that's being piled on top of them. Now, the way in which the film develops, it very cleverly makes you uh, question your own assumptions. It holds those assumptions to account about what's going on in this this relationship. As I say, it's a very simple story. It's quite directly told. It has a kind of a a slight air of... Michael Haneke frostiness about it but also kind of a Darden brothers remember the two days one night that they did with Marion Cotillard where the the camera will sort of do these, these long it's like kind of socially engaged these long weavy takes just kind of taking people into the situation in this family and just reporting on it you know observing not hamming up um, I think this is a tremendously accomplished debut. I'd be surprised if we see a better debut film this year. Um, wow. This is very, very worth seeing in the cinema as well for those expressions, for these incredible three core central performances. Uh,
0: uh, th- there's a vibe in your voice that sounds very movie of the weeky. Very Robbie, second bassoonist Colin movie of the weeky.
1: Well, we shall see, but we? Shall we see we shall see, because there's,
0: there's still more to come, isn't there? There is. There um, uh, is. Uh, the film just sounds like a, a powerhouse, and I can't wait to see it. It's, I'm still annoyed. I was annoyed listening to you, thinking that last night I had the choice between Titan and custody, and I chose Titan. <laughs> no okay, with, okay. with my wife, on the basis that we thought maybe custody would make us feel uneasy. You know, sometimes you watch things about a marriage. Yes, with Oh yeah. Well, totally. It my makes goodness. Feel and, and
1: this is this is like yeah. toxic masculinity. I mean, it's like radioactive masculinity. And what's so smart about this film is it explains the behaviour. Without excusing it. And it says, this is how a kind of a not very pleasant, but ultimately normal-ish man Mm. can get from A to very, 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 very bad B. And it's just, you can, it it charts that course so cleanly and so, you know, explains it so vividly. Uh, it, it doesn't kind of... He's not a monster. That's what's mm. so scary about him. Yeah. He's not a monster. You know, that kind of thing can cause
0: uneasiness within a marriage. Ironically, of course, the titan made my wife hate me. So. <laughs> it's time to select a TV movie of the week now. And uh, some of you have been guessing what Robbie might pick. Um, I've got a bunch of uh, correspondents here from our, our listeners trying to guess and, and giving their own opinions on the, uh, the best movie on telly this week. John Mills says if you're going to watch The Walk... It needs to be on a very big TV and in 3D, otherwise you don't get the full effect. Mark would probably pick Speed after his rekindled love for the film recently. Robbie won't, though. Mm. Uh, I shall watch Super 8, as it gave us the first clue as to J.J. Abrams being Spielberg's successor to the big screen. Uh, Sean Hatherley says, Speed is the film from that list which warrants repeat viewings. Thor is so-so, but got worse on the second viewing. Super 8 I've seen once and never felt the need to watch it again. Mark Orr says, I have such affection for swingers. I saw it at the Odeon, Leicester Square, on a balmy Friday night in summer with an audience of similarly aged 20-something males who laughed, whooped and even applauded at the end. Don't we all remember the occasions when the audience and film synchronised perfectly? However, Super 8 would be my choice for that extraordinary train crash and for reminding us that a love of nostalgia needn't necessarily diminish the level of artistry. Rebecca Jane's gone for How's Moving Castle. I adored the book, she says, as a child, and res- resisted the film for a long time because I thought it would ruin it, but it doesn't. Um Robbie will pick it because it's Japanese. Uh Graham <laughs> Right. Graham Hall. Graham Hall says swingers all week long. It's so money and it doesn't even know it. Doug Lyman directed, who went on to bring us born and the underrated edge of tomorrow. John Favreau starred and wrote, who went on to help launch the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man, and Vince Vaughan, who uh, um <laughs> and Ian Johnston says, My three-year-old daughter Tabitha recently established a welcome fascination with E.T. So Super 8 is my choice, as it brings back fond memories of when I was a similar age, watching anything that fell under the umbrella of Amblin. Yeah, I, My first feeling was Super 8 for this list, Robbie. I, I was surprised that my kids didn't take to it like they took to E.T. so immediately.
1: Yes, I was a slight Super 8 refusing, I have to say. But, I mean, clearly speed... Hell's Moving Castle, great films. Hell's Moving Castle, not just because it's Japanese, but because it's exquisitely <laughs> detailed Hayao Miyazaki animation. Yep. And particularly with recently the loss of Isao Takahata, of course. Miyazaki's co-founder at Ghibli. It was a great, great week to kind of uh, immerse yourself in, in, in Ghibli animation. However, I am going to choose The Walk by Robert Zemeckis. And I think on whether you've got—is so this the movie about the wire? This is the movie about the wire. For okay, Philippe Petit, the, the the French acrobat yeah. who, and stuntman. Who
0: there was that. a documentary as well, right?
1: Yes, right. Man on wire. The James Man Marshall
0: on wire. That's so it.
1: so basically, it's connected to what we were saying about rampage earlier, and this idea that cinema can redeem terrible real world events. And of course, the Twin Towers now are largely, you know, almost totally associated in the public Mm, imagination mm. with the September 11th attacks. What the walk sets out to do, in a similar way to Man on Wire, is to redeem those buildings as a symbol of human ingenuity and ambition and playfulness. Because this was basically before the buildings were even officially opened. Philippe Petit christened them with this act of total daring, doing a tightrope walk from one tower to the next without a safety net or any kind of harness. And it's just this idea that... This is what the buildings should be commemorated for, and in watching the film beyond the the sort of three D artistry and wizardry that, that made it such a compelling experience in the cinema, that was what really stuck with me. It's kind of saving those buildings from their legacy.
0: Mm, mm. I, you know, I I do need to watch it. I just I think the thing that maybe put me off was I remember Mark saying it's basically fifteen minutes that bit where he walks across... is Well, that bit still... is
1: 15 minutes, but the, the film itself is staged like a heist movie have Joseph Gordon-Levitt right. okay. and Philip Petit kind of planning and planning this thing so that he can pull it off. You know, it's it's art as a kind of a crime, as a kind of an artwork in itself. It's, it's really, really beautifully done and I think doesn't get enough credit. Whereas, of course, films like Speed and Hell's Moving Castle do. So that's why I've gone for the walk.
0: Yeah, fair play. I'm going to check it out just off the, off the basis of that. Um, now, one thing I love about the TV Movie of the Week is that they've recently started doing... The the terrible TV movie of the week, so bad it's bad. Yes. Um, and it's oof, it is quite. It's oh, it's kind of painful just looking at the list here. Um, Jenny Farrell says you can't choose lesbian vampire killers. You might get another angry letter from Angry Dad's Corner, uh, which is a reference some of you might uh, recognise from recent episodes of this show. Um, Sam Purewell says it has to be laughter vacuum killjoys for me. There's nothing to like for the duration of the runtime. <laughs> LVK uh, is a little abbreviation for you guys um, Tony Caldwell says Thunderbirds make a film about the greatest team of heroes make the plot about them being the ones who need rescuing by kids Ugh. Lucy Reynolds says LVK still one of the worst films I've ever had to sit through offensive on all levels and Emma Askew throws in Bad Teacher which left me feeling hollow and wondering why
1: just wondering <laughs> why
0: <laughs> about everything. Uh, so yeah, it's a pretty gross list. What's your grossest?
1: Selfie key. How can it not be?
0: And this is this is not. It's not a cordon hate fest. This is about no, no. The movie. I,
1: I think in the, in, in the right role, I've, I've got time for James Big Corden. Big time. Just, this is not. This is this isn't even the wrong role. No one. Yeah. It's, no it's one. Just time it's, for anything. It's, it's yeah. Poison. It's yeah. awful.
0: It's a bad, bad movie. And if you want to avoid that, uh, make sure you do not turn your TV on. After, in fact, pull the plug out of the wall. Uh, On Thursday, the 19th of April, 9pm on the Horror Channel. And I should just say for the TV movie of the week as well, um, Robbie's Choice, The Walk, is on Sony Movies on Saturday. Uh, That's tomorrow if you're listening live, Uh, 6.15 to 7.10pm. Well, that can't be right. It makes it only 45 minutes. Oh, no, my mass is terrible. It makes it fifty-five minutes, but it's not that. I'm sure it's, it's not, not anyway, that either. It's neither of those 6:15 times. six fifteen is when it starts. Just ignore me and look, uh, look, look in the look in the radio times. Okay, let's let's get on to something new before my 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 brain
1: melts. Right, well, let's talk about Truth or Dare, which is the latest uh, horror film from Blumhouse Productions. Now, Blumhouse Productions is a really interesting operation. It's kind of a boutique studio that makes a lot of low-budget films, mainly but not exclusively horror, and they they have a very high turnover rate. All of them are very low budget, and because of this, the uh, the, the films that hit will more than pay for the films that don't. And so they can afford to be quite ambitious and quite innovative when they want to be. And it's given rise to films like Whiplash and most notably Get Out. These are both Blumhouse films. And I think because of the very peculiar business model of the studio, it gives rise to to those kind of films and allows them to develop organically against this kind of backdrop of films like Paranormal Activity, Insidious, The Purge, Sinister. These are the films that keep the studio uh, taking over. Now, Truth or Dare is a textbook bad Blumhouse film because... The premise of it sounds like a very good idea, and I think you have to kind of make this film in order to work out that no, it's not a very good idea at all. It's directed by Jeff Wadlow, who, who his last film was Kick-Ass 2. It's a teen centric horror. And it's one of those teen-centric horrors where the premise is something scary that you can easily recreate in your own house. So uh, Ouija, which was a, a blumhouse film recently, uh, or even a film like Nightmare on Elm Street. You know where this idea that all you have to do in order to be stalked by this demonic character is fall asleep, or Candyman. You know you just stand in front of the mirror and say Candyman. Out. These are things that teenage viewers of these films can sort of toy with doing by themselves at home, and you know become scared and spooked out by the film even after they stop watching it. So that's the kind of premise you have. A haunted game of truth or dare, where people who join in with this game uh, are sort of possessed, taken into the control of the thrall of this demon at the heart of the game called Calyx. And the demon will give you uh, the choice of truth or dare. You have to respond truth or dare. He then doles out a forfeit and you either have to comply with that forfeit pretty much immediately, regardless of how humiliating or grisly it is or the demon will possess you and force you to kill yourself in some horrific way. Awesome. That's the premise, okay? And here we can uh, see a round of that, or here we can hear, rather, a round of that game in action. Okay.
3: Truth or dare? Dare. Dare you to follow through with your promise. Break Olivia's hand. Obviously, this was you.
1: Marky, why would I dare you to break my own hand? I don't know. What are you doing? You have to do it. What? You have
2: to. Ronnie didn't do his dare, and now he's dead. There's no way I'm going to break your hand. Well, you don't really have a choice.
3: So just take it. Please.
2: Marky, I don't want to find out what happens if you don't. (sighs) Just do it.
0: Just do it! Crunch!
1: Crunch. Right, so... And it was, uh, Olivia's played by Lucy Hale. She's the sensible member of the group Lucy Hale from Pretty Little Liars. Now, at first, the film works exactly as you would expect, and it's actually quite good. It's It's got the, the various truths or dares are get geared to kind of cause maximum discomfort to teens. It's about confessions in front of, you know, people that should be hearing things or people you don't want to hear things. And it, it plays it silly sometimes with the breaking of the hand. It also plays it serious sometimes too. One of the, the kids is gay and he hasn't come out to his dad yet, so the dare is that he has to come out to his father. So... So it's kind of, it's it's engaged with teenage life and this kind of not wanting to, in the same way that the real game of Truth or Dare is so appealing to teens for that specific reason, it's this idea of having to humiliate yourself on a stage, you know, on literally on pain of death. The problem is, just as, you know, you start turning that premise over in your head, you realise there's a lot of loopholes. So, for example, it'd be very easy for all the players to just sit in a room where there's nothing dangerous and keep asking for truths. And then mm-hmm. they just have to be honest to each other and it's, you know, it doesn't necessarily go out with the room. So the film has to keep on closing these loopholes by introducing more and more complicated rules and adjustments to the rules as it goes along. And the problem is the film basically becomes, by the end of it, just constantly explaining new rules to the characters. They have to deal with these uh, the, the new ways to kind of treat the, the game. And it, it gets bogged down in this rather than kind of having the, the, the fun of these humiliations and, you know, slightly nasty you know limb hammerings and horrible things going on like that that are at the start. It's a pity because the very end of the film, the way in which it ties up how this game is ever going to be closed off, is handled very well. It ends on something very clever, but it, it gets there by this very, very clumsy route. Another thing that really um, irritated me about it is that the game of truth or dare that they, that they get involved with these teens is they go on holiday to Mexico and they're coaxed into this abandoned church in Mexico by this lone backpacker. And he's the guy that inducts them into this ritual. And it just seemed incredibly lazy to say, you know, Mexico is this sort of Cradle of you know ghouls and terrors and you know this domain of weirdness that these kids have to go to in order to um to to get infected by this 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 possession um, particularly so recently after a film like Coco um mm. you know it uses things like the Day of the Dead processions you know leaflets flapping around painted skulls and things Ooh, what a weird country and it just feels slightly laboured and, and and cheap uh, you know there's no reason they couldn't have been playing this play this game far closer to home. It also means towards the end of the film, where they go to find clues about this truth or dare game, they have to constantly keep driving back to Mexico. So it's a <laughs> ridiculous, uh, you know, frequent flyer style journey over the border, back to the border, over the border, back to the border.
0: Made a rod for its own back
1: there Exactly. But to me, it's the, the premise is so kind of immediately appealing. Like you said, you know, this just, it sounds like it's going to work and mm. it just doesn't. But you kind of need to go through the film itself to work out why it doesn't.
0: Right. Right. So a nice try. A nice try <laughs> from Blumhouse. No cigar. And
1: to that, you know, to them it won't matter because there will just be, you know, there'll be another six Blumhouse films this year at least.
0: Right. It's interesting to know about that model. I, I, I didn't know anything about that at all. And uh, that string of horror films as well, keeping them going, so they can make the Get Out. So they
1: can right. Like, that's Paranormal Activity was their fantastic. first film. That's the that's the business model.
0: Um, I wanted to throw back to uh, a, a bit of correspondence we got um, earlier in the show, just in response to to Rampage. Um, by the way, guys, if you uh, missed the interview with Naomi Harris, make sure you check it out in the uh, in the podcast. It'll all be there. Um, just wanted to throw this at you, Rob, because I, I, this hurts me a little bit. <laughs> this is from Philip Morgan. He says, uh, Expectation was low, but I gave Rampage the benefit of the doubt and saw it in IMAX 3D as the trailers recommended. It was big. It was dumb. It insulted my intelligence. How did the writers think I wouldn't notice the plot holes? Uh, the holes in the plot are just too large for the action to cover. My sense of disbelief would have required a cable the thickness of the rock's arms to remain suspended. It really is a waste of the pixels that were hitting each other.
1: I don't understand what the plot holes the, are. Yeah, is there any I, detail? Because the plot is Gorilla plus Friends destroy the title. <laughs> yeah, that's so. exactly what
0: I was thinking. I mean, if you want to get into, you know, you were saying I couldn't remember um, why they were making the... Animals in the first place. I, th- I I was trying to remember at the time. and I thought was it a military weapon? Of some <laughs> I couldn't quite remember either. And then I thought, doesn't matter. It, it just has no bearing on the rest of the movie. And so to to pick plot holes in something like that, where it's like exactly what you say. This is what it is. Here's some beasties I'm I'm
1: skeptical that there is a plot hole. I would. I mean, I know it can't be discussed just now for people that haven't seen the mm. I'm, I'm skeptical.
0: Yeah. Well, there we go. um Give us something else that's new, Robbie, Yes, okay. Time. From, from Giant
1: Marauding Gorillas to A Gentle Creature, or rather A Gentle Creature, which is the new film from the Ukrainian... It's <laughs> so smooth. smooth,
0: yeah. That is right, smooth, thank you. man. Um, I'm
1: going to write that down. New film from the Ukrainian director Sergei Loznitsa, who his last film out in the UK, I think, to receive anything like a proper release was In the Fog, which is back in 2012, which I completely loved. A Gentle Creature shares a title, but that's all with a Fyodor Dostoevsky novella, It is a two and a half hour film about a woman trying to deliver a parcel. So let's just you know bear that in mind as we go into this. Wow. Um, The woman has no name. She lives in the countryside somewhere in remote corner of Russia, and she's trying to send a package of clothes and food supplies to her husband who is in prison. She thinks she knows which prison he's in. That becomes slightly vaguer as, as things go on. The parcel is returned to her with a handling fee, so she decides that in order to get these supplies to her husband she will have to take them herself. So she goes in this enormous cross-country odyssey to the prison and the town that surrounds the prison. And when she arrives there, she basically discovers this weird, malign ecosystem where the prison and the town are kind of feeding on each other Uh, in order to the the kind of this self-sustaining organism where basically the townsfolk love when the prison is flourishing. There's lots of people in there because of all the attendant businesses and people that can make money from the prison somehow around. And this is everyone from, you know, the the policeman to the prostitution racket to the the kind of guest houses that have to take visitors in because the place is so far remote and because the bureaucracy in the prison is so intensely punishing that if you turn up, there's no guarantee that you'll even get through the door for another week because you've got to fill out lots of forms. Mm -hmm. Now, the apparatus of this place makes it, basically as difficult as possible for her to get anything done. Every single thing she tries, every step forward she takes, there's five more steps back that she has to go in order to find a new route to it. It's very, very much like if you've read Franz Kafka's novel The Castle, it's like that where this guy is trying to reach this kind of monolithic building that's just beyond, just out of reach all the time. Uh, People keep telling her, I can help you, or I know someone who can help you, let me introduce you to this person and that takes her on a separate side quest and makes things a little bit more complicated again and again and again. Now the film... Is basically dedicated to building up this world and making you feel immersed in the world. The world is corrupt and it's disgusting. It's slightly like the version of Kazakhstan at the start of Borat. I think this is the second time i mentioned Borat in this program. <laughs> but you know this idea that it's sort of outrageously um, depraved and people have no kind of living standards whatsoever. Right. And as she's kind of drawn deeper and deeper into this, and it, it becomes not just. A bit icky and a bit bumpkinish and a bit backwards, but it becomes it's the, the kind of the intensity of the corruption and the fact that people are. The taxi driver describes the, the people in the town as like wolves. Pe- men act like wolves to their fellow man. They live in packs. This idea that people are hunting one another, picking on frailties and weaknesses, picking each other off for their own personal gain all the time. Now, part of it is satirical because it's a, a satire on Russia, contemporary Russia at large. Uh, it's first screened in the Cannes Film Festival last year. It's only become more topical and urgent since then. But it's also more timeless than that. It's, it's got a kind of a burlesque, absurdist quality to it as well. Now, I should say it's a very long film and about half an hour from the end, the film takes a turn into the more overtly surreal. That the, and, and there's also a sequence of pretty, like basically borderline unwatchable sexual violence towards the end, which you should totally know going in. This film right. goes to some very, very incredibly bleak places. Both of those things working together turned a lot of critics off. They thought the film went too far in all kinds of senses. For me, it's the idea that once you've got that kind of mired in this horror, you have to keep going down. That's the kind of story this film is telling and the way in which it, in a sense, resolve itself. And this is, you know, it's a story about a woman trying to get a box from A to B. That's all that's going on in this film. Um, it's incredibly haunting. When I went back to, to, to watch it again this week, I think it was 11 months since I'd last seen it, and I was amazed at how many shots, like individual shots in this film, were still there imprinted in my mind. Everything rang a bell. You know, these horrible mm. kind of sequences of her walking through streets at night, strange figures looming out of the darkness. The cinematographer is this Romanian uh, camera operator called Oleg Mutu, who doesn't do a, a great deal of work. He was involved with a lot of Romanian new wave stuff. Um, but when he works, he, he, he is a, a force to be reckoned with. And the way in which he likes faces, you know, these, this is a film of faces, grotesque faces, gargoyle-like faces looming from the background. It's kind of like, there's a film I mentioned quite a lot on here called Hard to be a God by this Russian director, Alexei German, which came out a few years ago. And that film was sort of like Tarkovsky meets uh, Trapdoor. You know, that old children's TV series with yeah. Play-Doh and that yeah, kind of Yeah, yeah. Burke, I'm hungry. All that stuff. You open that trapdoor. Trap door. Right. Because there's something down there. To an extent, This is the same kind of cinema of ordeal where you have to kind of buckle in and stick with it to the very, very bitter end. But it is, for me, this kind of stuff, when it's done well and A Gentle Creature is done extraordinarily well, it's immersive and affecting and kind of challenging in a way that very, very few other films are. I completely love this. And I don't think it's screening many places. If it is screening near you and you are feeling adventurous, I would Arge you to see this as it should be seen
0: let them know what it is again Robbie a gentle creature a gentle creature now see that had the same sort of passionate tone that you had about... It did. Mm, this is interesting. I wonder if we've got time to squeeze in really, really quick word about Western. We can yeah. maybe talk about it more in the podcast.
1: Yes, let's um, quickly squeeze in Western, which is a new film from Valeska Griesbach, who's a German filmmaker. Our last film, Longing, was released over here 11 years ago, so a very, very long delay. It's produced by a company called Complizen, uh, which is run by Marin Adi, the director of Tony Erdman. And I don't know if you remember, in Tony Erdman, a big strand of that was about Germans moving east in Europe, to try and civilise and improve, Uh, in the case of Tony Erdman, it was Bucharest, but these business people going over there to try and bring Bucharest up to spec with Western Europe. Western, as the title suggests, takes that theme and absolutely runs with it. It's about German labourers setting up shop in the Bulgarian wilderness in order to build a hydroelectric power station for the, the locals. And uh this is kind of obviously an ambitious plan to 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 bring that countryside, sort of uh civilize it, kind of settle it. There's a colonial feel to it. The idea of it being called Western, it's about Western expansionism and mm. that kind of colonial instinct. But it's also about single men going off into the wilderness on horseback and squinting at the horizon. And it's very, very much kind of playing into uh traditional Hollywood westerns and ideas from there, but transplanting them uh into Eastern Europe. Um the work on the power station does not continue very quickly. There's an issue with gravel turning up and there's an issue with uh, uh, water, not enough water being around to mix concrete. So instead, the men find themselves at a loose end. They start clashing with the local um, Bulgarian population. But they do so in such interesting ways and not in ways that you would expect a Western film to pan out. It's very hard to say yeah, much I mean, more like about it than that. It's hat is
0: stolen early on? Yes, right. This is is one, of, one of the
1: flashpoints is strange. that uh, one of the local women loses their hat in the stream and the foreman on the site steals it and refuses to give it back for a while. He's trying to be playful, but he comes across as slightly psychopathic. Small, small things like that have big implications. It is a tremendously good film.
0: I agree. So this has been a, a Something Else production for BBC Radio 5 Live. Robbie, what is your movie? In a very,
1: been? very, very good Go week, on. It's a Gentle Creature. But see Western and Custody 2 if you can. And Rampage.
0: And that was the show. Whoosh. That properly flew by.
1: When, When you're a critic and you have... Lots of stuff to champion. It always flies by, and this is such a great week for criticky films but, because there's three very very small releases here. that you just yeah. want to kind of basically drag people to the cinema to see. Rampage will survive on its own, scene. of course.
0: And it's it's fascinating you say that. It's, it's a particularly good sort of criticky week because speaking as a non-critic, when I looked at the list, I thought, oh, like yeah, right, paper. The star names? It looks like I've I've got the rubbish week. Just, where's where's the? They've beep? just
1: wheeled, yeah. Where's the? Beep? Well, we didn't get the rubbish week. Just, Edith,
0: no, we didn't. They just, Clarice. you know, at first I was looking at it, I was feeling really negative. You know, I looked at the names I was like, oh, because um, actually I, I wish I could find the list. Is on my phone. that was sent by the producers here. Uh, and it had the names of each film and then a description by the film. So, you know, uh, Rampage, big budget, popcorn, action movie, um, Titan, sci-fi thriller, um, custody, intense French drama. You know, th- these these kind of terms. And then it said um, <laughs> Western German construction workers building in Bulgaria, <laughs> and I was like, "Come yes. on, like throw me a bone." Where, where, like you say, "Where's the beef?" I thought they've just wheeled in Ben Bailey Smith again to do another uh, ethnic interview, like I did with <laughs> Ben Kingsley, half Gujarati, Dev Patel. You know, let's wheel him back in. I started, th- I started feeling very, very suspicious about my presence here. <laughs> but then you know, you start watching these movies, unbelievable. I mean, Western. I'd, I hated to have to rush you at the end of the show because. That movie, it really struck me, and, and partly I was saying to you off air, that might have been because I'd just finished watching Titan and um, the oh just the opening frame of of Western was like, oh yeah, filmmaking. Yeah. With right. real apparently real people doing real human things that I recognise being a human being. Um but yeah, it really it, it really took me somewhere and, and it was fascinating watching a movie about men and manly things and how men are. Around other men and how uh, you know they, how how they adjust, you know, when they're out of their comfort zone, and I double took looking at the the credits and realised it was directed by a
1: woman. Right, exactly, it's fascinating. As that naturalist's eye, like we are looking at animals yeah. in their habitat, yeah. And let's look at how they behave. I mean, the main character in the film is Meinhardt, played by a German actor called Meinhardt Newman. Um, and he's like, I mean, he's he has this kind of Clint Eastwoody air slightly because he has, you know, the kind of narrow eyes and sort of peering mm. around the place. But he's like, he's been sort of wiry and bristly and like twisted out of pipe cleaners, this figure. He's the first person we see in the film moseying through the streets of this Bulgarian village at dawn. And he is the guy who becomes one of the go-betweens between the, uh, the, the German workers and the, the, the Bulgarian locals. And it's this idea that it's you know like crossing over to with the Native Americans from the cowboy settlement you know from the fort uh, in, in in the middle of uh, you know Comanche country. Um, he is the emissary, and he becomes not so well trusted by his former by his by his colleagues as a result of what you know the friend the hand of friendship that he's extending to these guys. But what happens? Is because these, you know, the work can't continue quickly. These guys aren't achieving anything. They, they're not able to build up this enormous power station as they, they'd come to here to plan to, as they plan to come there to do. So they have to sit around drinking and they have to sit around killing time until this mm. gravel arrives. And they have to prove their masculinity, their potency in different ways. And it's this idea of men with nothing to do, just that instinct to you know do something to kind of make themselves feel manly even though they're not achieving anything that's the source of all the trouble you know that's why when that hat gets washed down the stream and the guy swims out to get it and starts being jokey about it but in this quite macho way that becomes intensely uncomfortable That's why that becomes a flashpoint for trouble. That's why when they're playing poker in the, the the sort of saloon-like place in the in the village, that becomes a flashpoint for trouble as well because it's about winning and it's about who's got yeah. the more money that can afford to get it, the game it, going why for longer. This I
0: feel stressed stressed out. Double parking in front of uh, a, um, a group of idling men. I, f- I find it really <laughs> difficult to to bay park or do anything in my car with 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 a crowd.
1: You know exactly, exactly. Um, that's that's the kind of. That sense is exactly what this film taps into, yeah, and that's why, after setting up this conventionally western genre style you know that we're out in the the wilderness, and the, these guys kind of building this settlement in the middle of nowhere and they're they're helping they're're they 're they're doing a favor to the natives who aren 't even that happy that they 're there in the first place, and what a nerve they've got because we're bringing them electricity yeah. and all this kind of stuff. The route that the film takes after that, which it it doesn't kind of devolve into us v. them, just pitched battle, but it goes somewhere much more complex and much more carefully Mm. psychologically observed. And that naturalist, you know, David Attenborough out in the tundra watching penguins kind of feel to it (laughs) is what made it so incredibly. And the fact that that's, you know, a female filmmaker, I think it takes a a, a female eye to do that in the same way as it took a woman's eye to make Point Break.
0: I, I 100% agree and and I, I should you know reiterate that when I said I looked at the credits and saw it as a woman and was like oh, I, that didn't mean like oh it was really good and it was made <laughs> by a woman Roger a surprise. I <laughs> I didn't mean like that what I thought was how brilliant that you have that I mean you described it perfectly as, as if it's somebody looking in on the wild showing you this this behavior how brilliant that that was a woman doing it, it just adds so much more to it somehow for me um but uh, speaking about representation, I, w- I didn't get the time in, in the show to, to really express how much um, the movie Love, Simon had uh, had, had touched a, a, a huge, huge audience and, and how much it had made listeners of this show in particular um, very passionate and want to write in and, and, and talk about it. And um, I wanted to get your opinion as well on the general sort of air we touched on it in the show of where we're at with filmmaking in, in, in this area at the moment. Um, This this is an email from Abe, uh, sorry, Adrian, um, who says, Dear Drum and Second Bassoonist. Oh, that's pretty clear. So, so pleased. So pleased that Love, Simon, has made it comfortably into the top 10 this week. I was lucky enough to see it at the BFI Flare Film Festival, and my worries that it would be a and cheese fest were completely unfounded. There's so much for me to relate to, even as a 37-year-old man. I did the coming out in... Uh, a car to my friend on the way to college and the speech from uh, the mother felt so real to me. I think that my childhood was much like the one she described too. I saw this film directly after the also brilliant 120 BPM uh, and in a way it was the double bill I needed. 120 BPM reminded me of our history and what people just a tiny bit older than me had to live through and Love, Simon gives a glimmer of hope for the future and how things have improved. I hope it continues to find its audience." It's an interesting double bill, isn't it? Because they are polar opposites in terms of how we view, uh, you know, accessible, in quotation marks, cinema. Oh, totally, you know?
1: totally. Because 120 beats per minute, I mean, that is properly, it's queer cinema. You know, it's 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 of that filmmaking tradition that start, sort of started with... Avant-garde gay film in the 1950s and everything, you know. So it's it's absolutely in that lineage, mm. and I'm I'm not a kind of an expert on queer cinema, and it, the, the the best thing I can kind of say is you you sort of know it when you see it. It's not just about um, LGBT stories, for example, like the Danish Girl, the Tom uh, Hooper film from from a few years ago with Eddie Redmayne. Yeah, but, but a trans character is not queer cinema. It's it's completely not queer cinema in the slightest, Mm-mm. whereas uh, films with Todd Haynes, for example, films like Carol, even Wonderstruck, you know, which didn't have a...
0: Wonderstruck, yeah. Right,
1: there, there, there was a kind of a queer sensibility ticking away be, below the surface there. 120 beats per minute is totally queer to its core in the most exhilarating and exciting way. Um, Love, Simon, it's it's kind of Harder for me to say, because I think what's so appealing about that film is the way in which it falls into the John Hughes tradition, which is not queer in the slightest. Mm. Mm. It's, 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 but yeah, it's a totally two sides of the same coin thing.
0: Yeah. And, and to take us into that that idea of it's a, an interesting and fertile time in cinema. Um, this email from, from Ellie, she says, uh, I'm a 23 year old student from Oxford currently studying to complete my master's degree, which can sometimes be really hard. Uh, so when I have these brief down moments, I take myself down to the cinema. Last night I went to see Love, Simon, having read and loved the book and seen a lot of good press across the youths on social media. Um, I had reasonably high hopes and loved the movie. Nick Robinson was a great lead, I laughed a lot, and it didn't sway into Ultra Cheese, which it was at risk to do. However, the most touching part came at the end of the film. I, like many other Wittatanees, stay until the end of the credits. Uh, After the crowds had gone, I realised I was left sat in the cinema with several men of all ages, all crying, I knew before going into film that this was a big moment for gay representation in mainstream film. But to actually see how much it meant to them was a reminder to me that we need to support films like this. Even if it doesn't mean anything to you, it does to someone. That's from Ellie. And that, that really sums up my... I mean, I've not seen this film yet, but I, I can't wait to see it because it feels like a moment, like Black Panther felt like a moment, mm-hmm. you know? There's,
1: there's a point around halfway through the film where you realise why it's called Love, Simon and the importance of putting those two words with the comma together and I'm not going to give it away because that when that realization dawns, everything clicks into place. It's beautifully, beautifully done. It's like what I would describe as a "well, duh" moment. Where right. You're kind of yeah. Sitting there, It's yeah. like, oh, well, duh. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah. it all makes sense. It's it's fascinating, isn't it? Because I, I
0: think it might have been on this show. I heard uh, uh, someone saying about Black Panther. I think it was, yeah, it was one of the actors in an interview on this show. I'm almost certain. Um, Maybe one of the producers can remind me, but she was talking about a moment on set where you know they they're they just breaking between scenes, and um, there uh, a bunch of the um, the, uh, um, the the extras had uh, drums um, and you know pat, banging along on the drums just in between takes, and they started playing the beat to drop it like it's hot by <laughs> Snoop Dogg, and she said before you knew it, the entire cast and all the supporting artists. Everyone was just rapping along the the lyrics over the beat, and I was listening to it, and I thought, what a moment that is in terms of where where we're at that on a mainstream movie with that level of responsibility, there is a sort of impromptu black moment, if you like, just mm-hmm. shared by everybody, and just not questions and and it felt like a metaphor for. What the movie was doing—it was giving you something like a Snoop Dogg dog song that just transcends. You don't, you don't, uh, you don't get a song by Snoop Dogg and think, "Well, I'm not allowed to listen to this." He transcended, you know, the the niche a long, long time ago. You know, and and Snoop Dogg belongs to everybody, and Black Panther really felt like that moment. It belongs to every everybody, and like you say, uh, Love Simon, not a, a Roadhouse queer movie. It's a movie that can belong to everybody,
1: right? Right, exactly. And I think, but I would still encourage everybody to see 120 beats per minute if you get the opportunity. But but know what it is um, as as you go in. It's 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 going to be a different kind of experience to something like Love Simon. Yeah, I think. But the thing is with with Black Panther. This is why I get slightly uh, wary of this drive to get representation only at a directorial level. Like we must have more black filmmakers. We must have more female Mm. filmmakers. Well, of course we must. Yeah, but this that's not where the change really happens you have it on all kind of tiers it's of course it's in the cast it's in directors it's mm-hmm. in producers it's in writers it's in costume design it's in composing it's in all these different levels and black panther i remember hearing that that set was basically predominantly black in front of the yeah. camera behind the camera um and that's where the that's where it comes from you know big time it's it's not some kind of edict from a, a white executive. Oh, yeah, they must make a black film. It
0: can't be lip service. And and by the way, it was Lupita Nyong'o that was the name I was looking for. Thanks to 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 Robin, our editor, letting letting me know there because I have often have brain farts on this show. Um, but yeah, a hundred percent. It should never be lip service. There was an email into the show last week with Edith Edith and uh, Clarice where someone was saying um you know, well done Wes Anderson for making Isle of Dogs, but I'm so bored of seeing a a white middle-aged male make a movie with white middle-aged male characters. And I thought, and she was saying, you know, how come there was no black or, uh, you you know, uh, uh, transgender or uh, other minority uh, actors or or performers? And I thought, well, I don't really want to see a white middle-aged male make a movie about, minority things that he doesn't understand about I'm quite happy for Wes to make movies about people who look and sound like Wes I don't personally have a problem with that I don't want to see Wes telling me uh, a black story you know
1: I can't think of anything worse
0: can you imagine It would. I, I would be but cringing the same, behind my sofa the so. same
1: complaint came up with the Coen brothers as well when they did Hail Caesar there were questions about representation in that film mm. the fact that they'd they had this very Jewish sensibility to the portrayal of Hollywood. And it's like, <laughs> mate, is the corn Brothers. Yeah, of course Coen it's going brothers. to feel Jewish. That's, that's, that's what they do. The, like, clues, they do it the beautifully. clue's in the name. Right.
0: Um, so yeah, as much as I understood where that email was coming from, I'd rather not have, oh look, um, it's Chris Rock voicing one of the dogs on Isle of Dogs. I'm glad there's a black voice in there. I'd rather have... Um, Chris Rock making bad hair documentary, you know, I mean, good hair documentary, yep, yep. you know, where it's like, oh, this is a black idea by a black man about a black experience. You know, that's, that's where real change happens for me and a new momentum is, is is created. And that's why, yeah, things like Black Panther really, really, really
1: excite me. And good hair um, was an enormous learning experience for me. Anyway. There you guess, go. Because it was, it was all, you know, this is stuff that I'd kind of bumbled through life happily not realising you know was anything you, you've never resist. had to
0: sleep sta- uh, sitting up have you Robby no ever you know and um, as amazing as your hair looks you wouldn't have guessed that you you slept lying down like <laughs> night, you know Um okay I think it's probably about that time isn't it for uh, for DVD of the week oh hey Robbie. Let's make our older listeners feel really old via the medium of DVD of the week. One of this week's choices is a brand spanking new 4K restoration of 1976's Carrie, which is closer in time to Boris Karloff's The Bride of Frankenstein 1935 than it is to us today. Mmm, Mortality mass. Lovely. Feel the beckoning finger of the man with the scythe yet, listeners? Won't be long now. The weekend starts here. Anyway... Let's hear everyone's thoughts on this week's DVD offerings. Oliver Trigg's Bloom says Briggsby be Bear. The doctors thoughts at the time hit the nail on the head. I went into it in expecting a really irritating indie noodly noodly film and actually found actually found it quite sweet and light-hearted. Perhaps possibly even a little too light-hearted given the subject matter and it could have done with a streak more darkness to the humor. But it was thoroughly enjoyable, and as I watched it on a plane, I must have caught an altitude-related bug that caused my eyes to leak. Matthew Lawrence says, I'm really looking forward to seeing Better Watch Out again, one of the creepiest horror films I've seen in a while that really subverted my expectations. Jared Giuliano says, For me, the top oldie is the Catherine Deneuve collection featuring Umbrellas of Cherbourg. That film is just a delightful and bittersweet candy-coloured confection from Jacques Demy, and clearly one of the main influences on La La Land. Haven't seen many of the new releases, so I'm going with Baskin because I've heard good things and been meaning to catch up with it. Now's as good a time as any. I think Robbie will pick Carrie and Briggsby Bear or perhaps The Return and Cherbourg, (laughs) saying <laughs> on the
1: fence Wow, there. hedging, okay, hedging out. Go.
0: Yeah. Um, so, Robbie, what, what is your DVD? Well, look, week?
1: Umbrellas of Cherbourg is definitely worth seeing, but I'm going to skate completely off-piste here, or ski completely off-piste, rather, and choose something that's not on the list but is out next oh, week. Oh, right, okay. Which is a Eureka, a Eureka Box set of early Ho Shao Shen films, which is a, 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 he's a Taiwanese filmmaker um, who recently had The Assassin uh, out in the UK. I think it was about two or three years ago that film was out. It's a really intensely beautiful martial arts period saga. Uh, he also directed a film recently called Three Times, but his early work uh, from the from the early 1980s is basically unknown in this country, and the, this early Ho Sha Shen box set aims to correct that. I've only seen one film in it, which is The Boys from Feng Kuei. There's also Cute Girl and The Green, Green Grass of Home. But The Boys from Feng is so beautiful and just completely a miraculously absorbing piece of filmmaking. I'm desperate to see these other two. It's about uh, three young men who live in a remote fishing village. They make out for the big city. They decide they're going to lord it up, you know, all lads together. But instead, they they find themselves maturing through encounters with uh, romance and crime and responsibility about work and things. The details of 1983 Taiwanese city life in this are exquisitely attended to. I mean, it's such a great observational filmmaking style that Ho developed at that point in his career that really, really rings out in films like The Assassin and in Three Times. Um, I am very, very, very keen to revisit the other, to, to, to discover the first two, as I say, and to revisit this third one as well. Um, so that's my pick. It's not on the list and that's how it
0: is. Fair play. <laughs> Fair play. And and specifically was The Boys of Fun The Boys
1: of Fun is the one that I've seen. And oh, oh right, Cute okay. Girl and The Green, Green Grass of Home are the two that I'm going to kind of check out. With. But look, The Umbrellas of Cherbourg, I mean, it's, it's a massive. Yeah, piece. Yeah, nothing seal. wrong
0: with that. The Boys of Fun is definitely going to end up being the name of a band formed somewhere in the Northwest, quite cool (laughs) indie stuff in a a couple of years, formed by a 15-year-old listening to this now. Um, Well, Robbie, as ever, it's been a pleasure. Um, You know, I'm always jealous of when I listen to the podcast, um, which is every week, by the way, that uh, Mark and Simon often end up stringing together enough of a relationship to to, to find a song that, that sums up their 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 moment in the show on that day, and it always I'm always jealous of the fact that we've never had that. But I, I, I was I was just thinking about the show. Right at the top, we sang Reunited, didn't we? we What's did. the name of that song? Is it called Reunited?
1: I think so. Maybe I mean
0: by Peaches and There's There's Robin in my ear. Peaches and Herb. Um, so you know, it would make my day as as a Wittertanee, as a, as an LTL back to the Radio One days. So I would love to. To end the show with a song that represented something for for me and my fellow super sub but who knows I mean that's up to the wizards behind the boards it's not up to us Robbie but it, it, it has been great wouldn't really that
1: be nice lovely game. if he just brought it in right <laughs> now
0: <laughs> yeah well you know they need time for these kind of things but anyway seriously fantastic to see you again uh, let's not leave it so long I mean well we probably have to because it's up to the big boys isn't it but um hopefully we'll be opposite each other once more I look forward to it thanks mate ta tada